Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening from wherever you are in the world. This is the Halligans and Half Wheels podcast brought to you by Box 1971, where we're changing the culture of the fire service one fireman at a time. Coming to you from Garden City, Long Island, New York. We are out here. We've just finished up a great weekend of training at the North Patch Oak Fire Department for the commemorative Tunnel to Towers Forcible Entry Training. Joined by my little booty, Big John. How are you, sir? Good morning. I am fair to Midland. Fair to Midland. What'd you think of this weekend, man? It was great, brother. Uh, Coming in, uh, like we we were talking before, uh, we had talked about uh, uh, southern hospitality or whatnot, but when we come in, these guys, they open arms, uh, treated us like family, uh, made fun of how you talk. Hey, say that one more time. Uh, (laughs) uh, But but, uh, going into the big city, man, that was the first time, and it was (laughs) – I think I'd rather have some pine trees. Well, coming out of the subway at Grand Central yesterday, I wanted to be the first out the door to watch you look up and see. Because we told you, hey, man, just look up. And you were like, nope, 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 nope. Nope, that's a long way up there. <laughs> and these guys go to work. They march up all them stairs or ride the elevator, and then, boom, they're off and go to work. Bless them. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> Chief Eddie, you made the trip from Lumberton. What What was your take on the day? Uh, good weekend, good brotherhood. Uh just totally not my ex- my expectation of the guys. Right. Um, being from the deep south, you always think, you know, oh, here we go with some damn Yankees. Uh, these guys were very solid. Uh, treated us like family. Sure. Uh, had a great time with the guys from North Patchogue. Yeah. Uh, you know, enjoyed the city yesterday. Enjoyed a little back rub. <laughs> had a good time. A legit one, not not a bad one. <laughs> well, the good news is about the uh, Tunnel to Towers Force Pointer training is we've already started planning for next year to do the same thing right at Patch Oak, North Patch Oak Fire Department. So that's that's already in the books. Uh, after the first of the year, that'll be released. But we're working on two more, one on the Midwest and one on the far, far left coast. We had some guys from L.A. City come in and join us. They uh, got some reps in. There were some questions on social media if they were really the real LAFD. That was, oh. was pretty funny because when did they switch helmets, you know? <laughs> so there, I saw that comment yesterday. I started laughing. But our guest for this month, I, it's it, his resume reads like a firehouse fiction tale. It's quite impressive. His career has been decorated very well, uh, documented very well. He has done a lot of things for not only the city of New York Fire Department, but fire departments as a whole. Uh, other agencies have followed his lead. Uh, he is retired now, and we have the pleasure of this month of speaking with the Deputy Chief of the FDNY, Chief Thomas Riley. How are you, sir? I am very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Chief, I have to tell you, when, before we go uh, on this, this journey, <clears throat> you did an amazing job speaking to the group on Saturday. Thank you. The What we were able to accomplish by bringing people from literally all over the country together for a common goal of training for Tunnel to Towers and the mission of Tunnel to Towers, which we'll get into later, you did an excellent job of capturing what we were actually there for. Although the the, the laughter was great, the brotherhood, the camaraderie, everything was on point. The the way you explain things and what the what the mission and the purpose of Tunnel to Towers is, is just, you did a great job. Thank you so much. And and Matt said you would do a good job. <laughs> so so I'm thankful for that. But we're, we're blessed to have you with us. Uh, 
we kind of want to just talk about your your career and how things began for you. So where did you where did you grow up? I grew up in Ozone Park, Queens, New York. <clears throat> uh, I always wanted to be a pilot. So in when I was eighteen years old, I had signed up to become a pilot, and then my father died at eighteen. So being a pilot was out the window. Too much money. So I was working full-time, helping support the family. And then friends that we were hanging out with, which, you know, being guys, knuckleheads, getting into trouble, <laughs> a friend of ours' father said, you guys should uh, really do something, take the fire department test. I'm like, fire department? Like, had no clue, just, you know, what, what do you mean fire department? So anyway, we did, and what that entailed was um, we had to go to classes at it was aviation high school, and they would have written classes. And then there was the physical classes that I went to at the Greenpoint YMCA. That physical was, you know, they say it was the hardest physical ever. And there was a lot of controversy about the physical because a lot of people failed it. But approximately one out of seven was passing. So I passed and uh, got appointed August 25th, 1979. So like I told you earlier, my dad had died when I was 18, and my sister was getting married on August 25th, 1979, and I had to walk her down the aisle. So after they, you know, were in the auditorium, and they're just yelling at you. I mean, it wasn't what it is now, like, nicey-nicey. They're yelling at you, and <laughs> the family's there saying, well, like, what kind of job is this? And I'm just, like, smiling, saying, this is going to be a great run. <laughs> so... Now, after we're all done, I have to go, sp I speak to a lieutenant. I tell him my story. I said, I have to walk my sister down the aisle. You asshole, what's wrong with you? you didn't you hear the, the chief? I'm like, okay, go speak to the captain. He says the same thing. The chief says the same thing. Finally, they say, okay, you come to Randall's Island on Saturday, and you be here at 6 o'clock in the morning and bring your tuxedo. So 1979, if you remember, powder blue tuxedo with these shiny shoes, right? <laughs> Big, nice. like, ruffles? Yep, yep. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I get there 6 o'clock in the morning, and you know what? There was nobody there except for me. <laughs> so I said, all right, this is going to be a great career. So they're breaking my chops already, right? <laughs> so I'm walking around with my powder blue tuxedo, and now, you know, we're going through all the stuff we're going through, and I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, I got to get out of here. Meanwhile, I got, like, the crew cut haircut because Thursday we got sworn in, Friday – uh, you're off to get your affairs in order, get your hair cut. Saturday, I got this crew cut. And um, so I'm walking around. I'm like, I got to get out of here. I got to get to this wedding, you know. And nobody really cares at this point, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> so finally, they said, okay, they pushed me through. They finally understood. And they said, okay, you go in there and you, get, you put your tuxedo on and you come out this door. I'm like, okay, not knowing anything. So I put my tuxedo on, my powder blue with the frilly thing, and I walk out the door, and there's my whole class. Now, I don't know these guys from a hole in the wall, and they're all standing there saluting me with a yellow slicker, and we had a civil defense helmet. That's what we had back then, right? <laughs> so I walk out the door, and they're all lined up, and they're all saluting me. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> so <laughs> I get to my car, and I, like, I laugh and getting out of there. So that was my first day with the New York City Fire Department. It's a hell of a way to kick it off. Oh, it was the best. <laughs> so now Monday, Monday we start. Now I'm like, now I got a bullseye on my back. Right. right? So I'm like, I got to do, because they're going to torture me. So at the end of the day, I ended up becoming the valedictorian, right? Just because I didn't want to get in any trouble after that. 
So the funny thing is, so now I become the valedictorian, and there was a, a firefighter in my class, and his father was a big chief. Okay. They said, you know, listen, we know you could be the val- you're the valedictorian, but we want so and so to do it. Are you, are you okay with that? What do you think you say? Oh yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> Not that it matters. So anyway, he became the valedictorian, and I got to hold the flag. So, so that was that. Was that the same test that Perone took? Oh boy, here you go. Yes, it was. All right. So he came on an eighty. 81, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> and you, uh, so you scored a little higher on the test. <laughs> yeah, well, well, like, like uh, it, there was like, I think there were seven events, and you had to score, you know, a good mark on each event. Right. And if you screwed up on one event, then that determined what your mark was going to be. Like the mile run, we were in this, uh, the armory in Brooklyn, and it was dark, and it was no lights and cold and you were running around and they wouldn't keep count. You had to keep count. But anyway, so I did the mile in 519, which is actually my birthday. (laughs) So that number comes up a lot in my life, 19, 519. And you'll see as we go through. Okay. So, I mean, that was, so that was one event. Then they had the arm hang. They had the 125 pound dummy carry. You had the ledge walk. That's where he, that's where he stumbled. That's where he stumbled. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. That's where he stumbled. So, you know, so once you screw up or well, having a, a problem with one event, then that affects your score. You know? Right. So, so that yeah. was that. So where was your first assignment? So, like I said, so I should have been the valedictorian, but I wasn't. And I didn't know anything about the fire department, so it didn't matter. So they sent me to Engine 61, which, like I said, I, couldn't, I didn't know where it was or what it was. So it was up in the Bronx. Um, it was a single engine with a battalion on Williams Bridge Road in East Chester. It was a great place. We had a lot of great guys because they kept filling it up there because guys, you know, if they as they moved out, they put new guys in. So it was a revolving door, but we had a lot of great guys. We went to fires. We relocated a lot. Back then, we had the interchange program. Okay. And the interchange is when a company did X amount of runs or fires, they would come to a slower firehouse, and you would go to their firehouse. Oh, that's, that's the way the interchange worked. Captain Farrell told us about that, and he right. said that he would always tear up the run tickets and throw them out the window. Right, right. <laughs> so we would interchange with the 70, 73 engine with 42 truck. They used to call that La Casa Caca, <laughs> the house of shit. <laughs> so <laughs> Can't you see that on a shirt? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we would, well, I forget what it was. Every third day, I think, you would, you would go there, and then they would come to your firehouse. So... You know, it was a great time, I really, but it was far from where I was. And back then, the toll was 75 cents, which huh. was a lot of money when you're not making much money. So what we, we would do with, you know, hopefully nobody hears this, we would throw washes into the basket, and then the, the gate would go up. And <laughs> I guess the statute of limitations, has that run out by now? Well, I'm okay. sure it has. Okay. I mean, okay. I'm sure New York's going to want their money, though. Okay, so... <laughs> So that's what we would do, and then you would go through. And But anyway, so um, my lieutenant, my first lieutenant, Lieutenant Tom Dunn, great guy. He took a liking to me, and um, so we talked. And anyway, he helped me get to Engine 236 in East New York, Brooklyn. It's a good number. It was a great number. It was a great house, uh, tremendous place. And back then, we had five-man manning. So what we would do is we would re- respond and get into a lot of fires 
first do without the truck. So the third, the doorman, he would tear, you know, break off, and he would either vent, take the can, put a ladder, force a door. So we had a, a great unit, you know, and I think that's where Mike started doing his forcible entry door, you know, because we would do a lot of that. Okay. You know, and he built on it and built on it, and he did a tremendous, tremendous job with it. I mean, what he has done with that door is, like, over the top, as we saw at the training the other day. Yeah. How many people has he trained? I tell him all the time, I said, Mike, we'll never know how many lives you have saved, how many people you have saved, how many firefighters' lives, I mean, et cetera, because getting in that door quicker as opposed to fumbling around, so... So anyway, so I ended up at 236 and uh, spent about 10 more years there. Nice. Yeah, the number of guys that have been trained by Mike, I don't know if we'll oh. ever know because no. the advent of YouTube. Oh, <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I, I tell him all the time. And you see him, right, in the training, right, guys? Right. He, I, I tell him, you, he eats, shits, lives, and breathes this force blancher, and he does such a tremendous job. He has called me. Oh, my God. Planning this event. Oh, I can imagine. He is He is to the nth degree, and every small, minute detail absolutely matters. I think we'd probably talk maybe nine, ten times a week. Well, uh, I told him I talked to him more than my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, another thing about Mike Perone, which I told you guys the other day, his lovely wife, Doreen, and my wife were best friends. And they introduced us, and we got married. So we're coming up on 37 years with three lovely, well, beautiful kids. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Wow. So take us through uh, some of the some of the early years. Did you, did you go to any memorable jobs? You Anything know, in that East was- New York, there was a lot of great jobs. I mean, honestly, you know, I'm not the guy, the guy who remembers the fight. Like you talk to Mike. Mike could tell you the fires we went to, what position you had, what day it was. So He's a savant. He keeps he, he, he kept a book. He kept a book. Yes, he did. And he would come in and he'd write in the book. Okay, uh, Tom Riley, and he, you know, write me write down about me. So when he would walk in, he would know. Oh, look at the book. Oh, hey Tom, how are you? <laughs> hey, hey Jeremy, how are you? You know. Um, so I mean, a lot of jobs, but one maybe will in particular. Fourth of July was a great tour to work with all the fireworks before Mayor Giuliani got in. So <laughs> Cleaned up the city. Yeah, if you worked 4th of July, forget it. It was chaos. You were going all over, fires. And we started in East New York, and who knows where you would end up because you <laughs> kept getting another run, a job, further away. And uh, this is before we had our responses on the MDT. So they would, the dispatch would constantly call you. Brooklyn to Engine 236, and then Brooklyn to all the other units. Then, fast forward, now we have the MDT where everything comes up on your screen. Right. So it's a lot quicker, easier to dispatch. Otherwise, you got to wait to talk to the dispatcher while they're dispatching everybody else. So this one job in particular, um, we're we going into Queens, and uh, you could see the flames. I think Mike was working for this job, and the flames were shooting over the top of the building, like 20 feet. And uh, we get there. We were stretching the line. It turned out how the way the fire started. Now, we were there for forever by ourselves because of everything was going on. So the fire started in the basement. What happened was the people had put their clothes out on the clothesline. P- 
people were shooting fireworks and rockets and mortars, and one of them landed in the clothes on the clothesline, mm. started the clothesline on fire. The clothesline fell down, swung to the, the basement of the house where the guy had motorcycles and gallons of gasoline. Mm-hmm. The gasoline ignited, started the first floor, second floor, third floor. The f- place was fully involved when we pulled up. Mm. And we were by ourselves for the longest time. But, I mean, like I said, you got to talk to Mike. Mike has all the memories. But that one, for some reason, <laughs> sticks in my head. You know. But, yeah. So when did, how many years before you promoted? So I got promoted in May of 1990. So, okay, so let's back up. So now I, get, we get, I told you how I met my wife, Cheryl. Right. And we're getting married um, October 19th, 1986. So I said, let me study because once I get married, it'll be a different story. So I study hard. And uh, the test is May of, uh, no, the test was May of 86. We'll get married in October. So the test is May. I take the test and I scored very well. So now I come into work the next day and they're breaking my chops. Because what happened when you take a test I don't know how guys do it, but they say, okay, Jeremy, you do questions 1 to 10. Tom, you do 11 to 20. And guys would, like, little notes about what that question was about. And they would have a a bogus answer key that was pretty much spot on. So I had a really good mark. Okay. So the guys knew that. I come in the next morning, Sunday, and they're breaking my my balls. Hey, you know, they're going to throw the test out. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, right. Sure enough, there was cheating going on. Oh, Mm. So, so this was back and forth rumors. So now I now I get married in October. I go on the honeymoon. My wife goes, take the books with you. I'm like, I'm not taking the books on my honeymoon, you know. Right. So it was a very crazy time. And anyway, the test eventually they got thrown out. We got like two weeks notice, and the second test was December 21st, right before Christmas. Right. So I took the exam, and I hadn't studied the whole time. I gave it like two weeks of studying. So my mark, I dropped. But fast forward, and it took me a while to get to this point, then we have September 11th. So had I had that first mark, Mm. maybe I'm not here today. Mm. Mm. So, you know, at the end of the day, believe me, it took me a long time. I'm still not really over it, what they did, because there were a lot of guys who passed that test, failed the second, failed the first, passed the second, there was a lot. Right. And, and the person who gave out all these answers, uh, his punishment was a $10,000 fine, Oof. which is really nothing. He should have been fired. And then the next year, he was the highest guy in overtime in the city. Mm. He was on the front page of the Daily News. So, Wow. And how many lives? I, I know so many guys who were impacted by this. Wow. So anyway. That's a hard turn for a career, you know, for the people that did it right. 100%. You know, we work, and it's, I mean, I don't know if you saw the amount of material. We have like two milk crates full of books. Right. That you're studying, that you peak for that one day, and then they throw it out. And it, like I said, it was rumors, and it wasn't thrown out until like two weeks before, officially, and then we had two weeks to study. Mm-hmm. I mean, some guys stayed in the books. I was totally burnt out. I, I just never looked at the books again until two weeks. Mm. So, mm. so you, you became a boss. 
So I get promoted in May of 90, and I went to the 13th Division, which is Queens, South Queens. It was a great place, a lot of fires there. I was UFO in Ladder 126, Ladder 155, a lot of great places. I put in for a couple of spots. It just never worked out. So after two years, I went back to Brooklyn, and I was bouncing around. And um, wherever I would work, I would run into Engine 310 and Ladder 174, Snyder Avenue, Snyder Island. I don't know if you've heard of them. So I'm like, wow, this is a great company. Anyway, I get promoted. I mean, I get the spot in um, Engine 310. And then a year later, I went across the floor to Ladder 174. Okay. And it was a great spot. Um, You know, uh, East Flatbush. Plenty of fires. <laughs> a little rough area. Plenty, yeah, plenty of fires. <laughs> I mean, great house. And to this, you know, back then it was like an unknown firehouse. You know, it was under the radar. Now everybody knows about Snyder Island. You know? Right. It's a great house. Great guys. Just, you know, a lot of good work there, you know. Right. When morale's high and you go to a lot of work, it makes for a great house. Mm-hmm. Right? 100%, 100%. If it's slow, that's when the... Idle minds of the devil's workshop. Yeah, well, we <laughs> we still had a lot of that too, but we still had uh, you know a lot of work. Lot well, of, shenanigans are fun. Shenanigans, a lot of shenanigans. <laughs> yep. For sure. Yep. Well, you, did you go to the first World Trade Center? The first World Trade Center. I was working that day. I was working. I was in Engine Three Ten, and the truck went. Uh, the engine did not go. We, it was a very busy day. We had. For some reason, that day, there was a lot of fires. I don't know. It was just a crazy day. It was a beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. Remember it, you know. So um, they, the truck went. The engine did not go. Um, and, you know, so no, we did not go. Okay. Well, that's, that's a blessing, too. Yeah. Yeah, right? well, yeah, I mean... As we go along, maybe there was a couple of bullets I dodged. You know, I told you the first one about the test, and right. you know, so who knows? We'll yeah, see. whatever. Yeah, sure. So you you get you get made. That was for a lieutenant's pot, right? Correct. Yes. All right. So when did you take the captain's test? Uh, I'm not sure when we took. I got promoted to captain in 1998. Okay. All right. Yep. Well, let me ask you this: off, it's kind of a little rabbit hole when. You know, you've done a lot of consulting work, uh, a lot of uh, helping other agencies adapt and, and move forward. How do you, how do you have the talk with your men? How do you bring them in and say you set the tone? That seems to be a big problem, especially in today's world where we can't, we have to be politically correct 100% of the time, and we can't cuss and holler like we used to. So how did how did back in the day how did you have the chat with with your new guy? Well, you would just talk to him and tell him, look at the the place you're assigned to, and the reality of it is, um, most times I didn't have to have that chat. The brothers would take care of that, you know. And if it got up to to the lieutenant or the captain, that was that was not good. Yeah. So. You know, they just knew where they were getting assigned and the pressure was there. And it's not a bad pressure. It's, listen, you know, it's camaraderie and, you know, one for all and all for one. And you're only as good as your weakest link. So what I would tell the brother out in the field is 
you guys have to set the pace. Don't let the bosses do that. Because if the bosses do that, you know, they're going to have to sometimes go by the book. You know, you're bringing me something. Well, now I got to take care of business. Yeah. You guys police the troops and the men and um, men and women and make sure things are done the right way. And just let them know this is this is the way we operate. This is our unit. This is our this is our reputation. Because you could have the best engine company, best ladder company, best rescue, and the minute you screw up, guess what? That company sucks. They're the worst company ever, right? Right. So, and we have to be on all the time. We can't have off days. We can't have off days. So that's, you know, you the brothers should take be taking care of business. Well, then- a senior man is to me. You know, I, I know I'm talking from the New York City Fire Department, but I would say even with the volunteers or wherever you are, somebody who's the senior man who's been around for a while should be the person setting the pace. Exactly. And if that person is not setting the pace, well, then move over. The next guy's going to do it. Yeah. Well, that's how it should be. That's the way it should be. You know, we, we catch a lot of flack. Um, you know, we're, we're from the South. We've got guys from all over. One of our guys, as you know, Phil Laramore, he helped co-found the business. And, and you know, he, he left FDNY after eight years, after 9-11. Um, and we, we talk about, we call it a tile wall mentality because there's a lot of tile walls inside the mm-hmm. firehouses. And there's a different culture inside the city of New York. And we've tried to tell folks that this, this culture works. If it works for 11,000 members, tell me why it doesn't work in your 56-member department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've done some amazing things with, uh, you know, well, I mean, you were part of an electronic fireground later on in your career. You've done some helmet stuff, uh, portable radios. I think you guys call them handy talkies, mm-hmm. right? You guys, you've done some stuff with that. You know, you've you've done... You know, with PPE, we can get into all that later, but you've done things that have affected because when New York, the city does something, it changes the atmosphere for everyone else because everyone else follows your lead, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, they went away from Morning Pride. Folks are going away from Morning Pride now. You know, the Scott Air Pack, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's the hallmark, right? And we're from North Carolina where Scott is based from and we're Scott. We don't really care about MSA. Right. So, okay. um, you know, the one word is redundancy with Scott. It's safety, redundancy, and that's tried and true. But when you when we talk about leadership, there's a lot of – one thing that I admire about the city is that there's not 50 different helmet colors. <laughs> you go to all these other fire departments, I'm a red hat, you know. I've got a yellow helmet. And somebody said something the other day to the guys from L.A., who wants a yellow helmet? Nobody wants a yellow helmet. Just give me a black one. And, you know, we say 11,000 members, there's two helmet colors. Correct. It's black with a different front or it's white. Right. And it's easily identifiable. It's uh, it's just more economical. It's more sleek. I I just, I don't get it. But everybody chases a helmet color from where we're at. And Mm -hmm. it it is quite annoying. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite annoying. So, you make captain. Well, I yeah. think before maybe go back. So back then we had for some reason a lot of fatalities, and safety command, which I ended up, I worked in safety. I was you know assigned to safety for a while, but this is early on in my career. They determined that 
it was a lot of back to basic stuff that wasn't being done, chalking the door, things like that. Right. So myself and a few other people got together and we uh, designed a class called Back to Basics Engines. And then we ended up teaching this program and it saved a lot of guys' lives. It was a tremendous program. And basically, I was just talking to you, like, let's get back to the basic stuff, what we have to do. And uh, so we did that, and, and that worked out good. Um, what was a part of that? Like, what was the part of the back to basics? Well, like, basic thing, just chalking the door. Like, you go through the front, like, if you force a door, like they were doing the other day at the training, and I saw a lot of the guys doing it. As they forced the door, they would grab it. Right. Because you let that door fly open, and guess what? Now you don't have control of that door. Right. It's like taking the door off at the hinges guess what? You can't put that door back into the hole. Now that fire is upon you. Right. So simple things like that, you know, stretching the right amount of line. Don't stretch short. You know, um, have your, you know, your, your control man, your doorman, and, and do, things like that. Just basics on basic firefighting tactics and strategies and procedures. You know, the hard part for us is we live in a pre-connect nation. Correct. The yes. Matty Dale. Yeah. I think that's the old term, right? Plus, you have the manpower issues. Right. Which, you know, the fire department in New York City, we do not have that issue. We just keep calling. If we need more men, we just keep calling. Just keep dumping. Just keep dumping. <laughs> so, we have plenty of manpower. Right. You know. Um, so, I got promoted lieutenant. I guess I should back up on that. So, when I got promoted lieutenant in May of ninety. March of 1990, I don't know if you guys heard, there was the Happy Land Fire. Yes. Okay. So that happened up in the Bronx where I eventually became assigned as a battalion chief later on. <clears throat> so the Happy Land Fire, it was, uh, the building, it, it was a social club, they would call it. And it was illegal. It didn't have the exits. It didn't have sprinklers, lights, so on and so forth. So the building had plenty of violations but was never shut down. So this fella, Gonzalez, had an argument with his girlfriend, and uh, the bouncers end up throwing him out of the happy land. He says, I'm going to be back. He goes and gets a dollar's worth of gasoline, comes back, and tortures the stairwell. Mm. And he killed 87 people. Mm. Okay, and some of the people were found, like they said, with the drinks in their hand. They just got, it It just ate up the oxygen, and people just died, and, you know. So... Oof. I wasn't at that fire, of course, but the brothers that were there said they were crawling in, and they were crawling onto, they didn't know what it was, like pillows or what it was. It was bodies. They were crawling across. They were just, they dropped right where they were. Wow. So 87 people had, had perished that day. That was the, right bef- before that was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in 1911. You guys heard of that. that yeah. At that point, that was the most loss of life. I think there was 146 that died there. So now, fast forward, it was the same exact day uh, on 1911. It was the same exact day as the uh, Triangle Shirtwaist fire. Um, and Happy Land fire, 87 people died. So, so when we got out of, probi- out of lieutenant school, FLIPS, they called it, First Line Supervisor Training Program, they had de- designed the Social Club Task Force. And what you would do is you would get teamed up with police department, um, the buildings department um, and a bunch of other teams and you would go to all these social clubs and your job would be to go in there and if there was violations, shut them down and they would come in and put a padlock, get everybody out of there. So we did that for a while and then um, got back into the field. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. I never knew that. I never correlated the triangle shirtwaist and the Happy Land fire. Yeah, it was the same exact day. Wow. The same exact day. So they, they caught him. He went away. So he got caught. Um, he, they, they caught him the next day. He went home. He fell asleep with his clothes, you know, stinking of gasoline and everything else. And they got him, and he he got life for each person that, that was killed. Mm. He ended up dying in prison. I think he was like 61 years old when he died in prison. <clears throat> There's a monument right across the street from the Happy Land with all the names on it of all the people who died. Wow. That's that's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Bit. So so like I said, so I bounced around. I went so I, then I was in Queens, then I come back and I got the spot in uh one seventy four. So mm. so that would kinda of caught up, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. Well yeah, I mean, what, thirty thirty six thirty eight. 38 years? Yeah, they cut my career short. I only had 38. Yeah. I, I thought it was 30. I thought it was 37 or 38. I couldn't remember. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a hell of a run though. I had a great run. I yeah. Had a great run. It's a hell of a run. Yeah. So you you made you made captain. When did you go for chief? Um I got promoted to chief in 03, 2003. Okay. So do you want to talk about when I was do we have running out of time? Oh or? no, you just chief. We have this is this is our show, our time okay. with you, and, and okay. what we want to do is we want to talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about. Okay. You're the boss. You're okay. the one with the liquor in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> we got to break into that. Soon. That smooth ambler. I'm oh, going to tell, tell you. I tell you. I keep looking at it. I got to move it off to the side. <laughs> Come straight out of West Virginia. Yeah, it yeah. is. I'm telling you, that is some good stuff. Okay. The uh, so there's a there's a time gap in between there. Um, that we're going to talk about uh, September the 11th of 2001, that Tuesday. So right. you you were off, correct? So on September 11th, I was assigned. I was captain of Ladder 154, another great file. I had a great career. I had all good places. So on Norland Boulevard in 82nd with Engine 307, um, the 49 Battalion um, in Queens. So I was assigned there. I was actually home. I was on vacation. So when September, I was home, and that morning we were actually doing political action with the union, the UFOA, the Fire Officers Union. We would go, when there was elections, we would go and we would, you know, uh, politic for the candidate we were supporting. So that morning, a good friend of mine, Steve Garrity, who just passed away, I don't remember him, he, he had a great career. He was a chief of training. He did a lot. His brother... Ed Garrity was killed September 11th. So that morning, September 11th, Steve came to my house. We were going to do our politic in, at, um, in Manhattan, uh, not too far from where the Trade Center was. And uh, just kind of a coincidence. So he comes to my house, and um, we ended up getting separated over the, throughout the day. And I run into him later on. At this point, I knew his brother Ed. He was in the 9th Battalion. If you listen to the uh, transmissions, you'll hear Chief Garrity, the 9th Battalion, speaking to Oriole Palmer, who was a good friend of mine. He made up to the 78th floor. We used to carpool with, with Oriole. He lived right by us. We used to take the kids to school and everything else. <clears throat> so anyway, um, we get separated, and uh, I run into Steve like 3 in the morning, and he you know, tells me that Ed had, was killed, which I knew at this point, unfortunately. you know, And... Um, so then after that, we just spent every day you were either at the pile looking for survivors 
or you were going to funerals or um, working or spending time with the family. And that was, it was just a blur for that next year. Mm. Mm. I mean, I remember days going to, I don't even know how many funerals we went to in each day. You would, you would go to one because you, you wanted the coverage, you know. Right. You wanted the brothers to get their due. So you'd go to one, okay, we got the next one. And you'd get in the car and you'd drive to the next one. You get in the car, you drive to the next one, you know, and then, then you're back on the pile or you, you know, it was crazy times. Right. Crazy times. Right. And that affected you later on in life. Yes, it did. Yeah. The, uh, the, so when you were there, you were, you were still a captain. I was a captain of ladder 154. Yes. And so you were there and then what had happened since we lost 343 of the brothers that day. Um, so you were either, I was, and most, a lot of times I wasn't even in my firehouse because I was what they call ABC, acting battalion chief. So I'd come in, they'd say, okay, you know, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be the acting battalion chief in the 4-6 and wherever you were going to be, the 4-9. Um, because we were so short on manpower and people were either killed or, um, down at the pile it was uh it was crazy every time you got to run it was like all right what's going on here you get we get a run to the subway you're like uh-oh what you know what's the deal here you know it was it was a lot you right know, you, you're responding in there's helicopters overhead you're like oh what's going on here it was it was uh crazy times yeah yeah it was um it was a different world it yes, doesn't it seem that far removed from today yeah, yeah. but it is a, it was a different world so when did you make, you made chief in 03? So, yeah, so I, I studied and then um, I got uh, promoted in 2003 and I went up to the Bronx. Okay. Which was where I started. Okay. So I'm bouncing around the Bronx. I loved it up there. Uh, now the toll, which I told you was three fifty, was seventy five cents, is now three fifty. <laughs> so I'm smart, right? Instead of staying in Brooklyn, which is well, you know, we'll keep you in Brooklyn. I said, no, I want to go up to the Bronx. But I loved it up there; it was the best. And then I got assigned to the 19th Battalion with Engine 75 and Ladder 33. Great house, great bunch of guys. I mean, that whole battalion, the whole borough is just—it's a great place to work. They call it like the gentleman's borough. You pull up. And if you're first due, they let you go in. Unless, of course, there's people trapped and fire out the window. But, you know, there's, uh, there's no, you know, rushing, beating each other in, you know. Right. Well, before you, before you made uh, chief in 2003, you were part of a, uh, a, a rescue, right, in the Queens uh, four-story. Was that right? Uh, which one? I, I think we're looking at... Uh, Astoria Boulevard oh, yeah, and yeah. East Elmhurst. Yeah, with the with the baby, with the yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was that job? I don't know. It was uh, we well, had a fire. You know what? <laughs> like, I, like I told you before, I, I I really don't remember. Like I like you should have warned me about this. No, that's all right. Because <laughs> I don't I don't remember. Yeah, we, we had a fire. We pull up, and there was uh, the woman and her infant was trapped, and we ended up going in there and we rescued the mother and the baby. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Four stories up. Yeah. 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 No big deal. <laughs> just Another the garbage man doesn't turn the corner yeah. and see garbage cans and get excited, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we love your humil humility, though. It's it's. Well, it's I, I, 
I didn't know we were going to be talking about that. No. So, we're but, gonna, but I don't remember. Like I said, if you would have reminded me, I could have researched my no, homework. And, no, there's, uh, a, there's a good picture of you right here. You, you, you look young and dapper. Well, actually, <laughs> in that picture, uh, I don't know which picture you have. Let me see. Okay. So, yeah, that, the, the one to the right of me, that, that's, yeah, that's the one. That's Mike McCrory. He's a battalion chief now. But in that picture, standing up, if you – Yeah. There's a Ron Kirshner. Okay. I don't know if you could see him in that picture. Ron was a great guy. I loved him. He was a character and a half. He just died not that long ago. He had early onset of Alzheimer's. Mm. I think maybe 50 years old it hit him. Mm. And, um, of course, once again, another effect of 9-11. And he, he died uh, just recently. But he was a great part of 154. Oh, my God. Funny, funny guy. Great firefighter, you know, but it was very sad when he passed. You know, and his wife and, and, and they had the two kids, a boy and a girl, and they just took care of Ron all the time. And I remember I was in the city one day, and I'm coming back in Penn Station. You guys know what Penn Station's like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chaos. <laughs> it's, just, it's just chaos there. But he was in the middle of this, but he saw me. I don't know how we saw each other in the middle of Penn Station. I don't know where he was going, what was going on, but he had this smile. And I went over him, and we, we hugged in the middle of Penn Station. Uh, ended up missing my train, but it was well worth it. Um, but he, he couldn't talk, you know. And then fast forward later, I ran into him again at a, a nursery with his wife. And same thing, he, this smile, he lit up this smile. It was uh, very, very touching, you know. But, yeah, right. he just passed away. But, yeah, so he was with us at that fire with, with that woman yeah, it was, and the baby. That was up a ladder. I mean, that's... It's, that's every fireman's dream is yeah. to do something like that. That's uh, that's a win-win. Yeah. Well, the way they wrote it up was wrong. They said, I forget how they wrote it. We went, we go through the interior all the time. Right. And, and I have my outside team. They go up through the ladder, but we went in through the interior and rescued her and got her out that way. Not the way they said it in the. Paper. Oh, really? But okay. It's it was close enough. Yeah, we were just part of a fatal fire that uh, didn't work out as well as yours, but. They got it completely wrong. The media is. They always do. The media is the media. Well, that was the whole thing. Whenever I would give an interview, it would it was funny because this one guy would laugh at me all the time because I would always keep a bag in the back of the car with, when I, as a chief with my dress cap and my tie. And they'd say, oh, chief, can we interview you after the fire? I'd go to the car and I'd be like, turn around, get dressed. Right. Because when you're on head, you know, headquarters looks at that, they got to make sure you're dressed up the right way. So I would sure. come out like, oh, look, wow, look at this guy. He's got the hat, got the tie <laughs> on, you know. I do like the hat. The hat is a great yeah. look. Well, it is a great look. And also, one more thing about the hat. Like, if you guys are going out and doing something, when you walk in there with a hat, whether it's a helmet or a dress cap, people kind of listen to you. You say, listen, you got to get this done. and. You know, it's right. more official then, you know. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so getting back to those interviews, they, you know, you had to be very select with your words because they would cut and paste and you say, well, I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. So you have to be short and sweet when you give an interview. Right. And be very careful what you say because they will cut you up and you're like, that's not what I meant, but that's what everybody hears. And now they've got this new AI stuff. Oh, forget it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like you, they, they can make you say all sorts of stuff yeah. and make your mouth move and, yeah. you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you yeah. weren't present in the room and you really don't know what was said, you, mm -hmm. you're shit out of luck. Well, I got to talk about a few partners of ours, Chief, for just a minute. Fire Dex Gear, 
provides Box 1971 with Tech Gen 71 and 51 PPE. Their mantra is, is you take care of them and we will take care of you. We've talked about Captain Farrell a little bit today. Uh, Box 1971 is an authorized trainer and distributor of Firehooks Unlimited. We are thankful for Captain Farrell's partnership and his dedication at 93 years old to ensuring that firefighters have the proper tools. Matex Hose, this is a no BS approach to fire hose. From the apparatus to the nozzle, Matex is the choice for gallons per second versus BTU. Milwaukee Tools, proud sponsor of the Box 1971 Halligans and Half Wheels podcast, nothing but heavy duty. Rock Rooster Footwear, every step matters. Be like Box 1971, rock out with your cock out. Use Box 1971 for a 15% discount code at checkout. And lastly, we've talked about the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Perone from Firehouse Innovations Corporation. Mike is a retired FDNY from Ladder 175. He is the inventor of such things as the multi-force crush door prop, the HT-175. We are proud to use Mike's equipment, and we are proud to be an authorized trainer for Mike. There's over 2,500 of those doors in service. There is an absolute reason. If you don't have a blue door, you don't have a door. So, Chief, we uh, we talk about, you know, you making Chief. How was that test? Okay, so maybe just go back up. If, so, as a captain, so now after September 11th, um, you know, we we lost a lot of members, and we had to improve on our training and step it up. So, they asked me to go to the Rock, and I was assigned to tactical training, trying to get everybody up to speed again. So, we did that for a while. And then the city, uh, the federal government came up with this OSHA rule, two in, two out. <laughs> yeah, we're all very, very familiar. Yes, yeah, so we had to design that, help design that class and help teach that class. So those are two other things that we did. But anyway, so I'll get promoted to chief. And I'm sorry, what was your question, Jeremy? No, just how, take us through that. Like, how was that test? What that was, was that? a very hard test, you know. Um, uh, I mean, it was very hard. It's hours long. I mean, one the, the test was probably six hours long. Wow. You know? Holy cow. Yeah. And, um, I mean, before that, I had taken a captain's test that was 12 hours long. And you probably couldn't leave the room? You, no, you can't leave the room. No, 12 hours. I mean, it, so these tests are grueling, and I'm glad I'm done with them. <laughs> I am so glad. And so and I'll bring that back because, like I told you, back – when I was 18, I wanted to become a pilot. Right. So now fast forward, I started to revisit that. I took a couple of flight lessons. I wanted to do it. Like an assessor? Yes, correct. Oh, okay. And as I went through the process, I'm like, you know what? There's too much reading and studying involved. <laughs> and so, so I bailed out on it. But I would love to do that. I'd love to just get in the plane and let's, let's go to uh, Connecticut for lunch. Let's go to Montauk for, for lunch. You know? That sounds great. It, right? It sounds like a great idea. Yeah. So, but uh, that ship has sailed. So, um, <laughs> that, so that's out the window, unfortunately. But whatever. Yeah, so that sh- the test was a very hard exam. Um, you know, passed it. And uh, then I got assigned to the 7th Division, which is in the 19th Battalion. Okay. And uh, that, like I said, that was a great place. That's They call it the Animal House. Yeah. So for those that don't speak FDNY, where's that battalion it's, at? It's up in the Bronx. It's in University Heights, which every five feet they have a different name for an area. <laughs> this is called University Heights. It, um, it's um, right off of Jerome Avenue. Right. And, and Walton. 
Jerome Avenue, Walton Street. Okay. Well, uh, it used to, the firehouse used to be on Jerome Avenue before I was there. It was an old original firehouse with the train L passing by and, you know, back in the day, chaos. And so even when I was there in 03, it was a lot going on. A lot of good fires, big H types and everything. You name it, we had it, you know. New law, old law. New law, old law, PDs. I mean, a lot. It was a great place to go, you know. Chief, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I just had a moment. Yesterday, we ate on Mulberry Street at Five Points. We, we failed. We did not go to the Ravenite Social Club. That's where Gotti used to hang out. Yeah, we should have gone there. That's y'all's fault for not. I don't know why it made me just think of that when we were talking about different neighborhoods, and you said, you know, every five feet. The f- I think the five in my mind triggered. I, I've always wanted to see that place, and I've never done it. That's over by 55 engine, right? Right. Yeah. Chinka, chinka, they go all that. Ten <laughs> 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 four, k <okay. laughs> So, talking about Gotti, when I grew up in Ozone Park, like I said, it was a big Italian neighborhood. All my friends were Italian. Okay. And that's where the... Um, what was this... Social club, the name was the social club. It, the social club was right there. Okay. You know, right on 101st Avenue. And back in the day, what they would do is they would have fireworks. They would, and there was a main drag, 101st Avenue, and they would just shut it down and just blow off fireworks. And the buses would go around it. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the Bergen Hunt Bergen Fish. Hunted Fish Club. There that, you go. Thank you. Yeah. Bergen Hunting Fish Club. So uh, the bar that we used to hang out in, a lot of those guys used to hang out in our bar not that their bar I should say we used to hang out with them you know <laughs> but um, yeah that was crazy back then and then when Mayor Giuliani came in because like I said 4th of July you worked it was chaos and uh, and then Mayor Giuliani came in and he cracked down all that and he definitely cleaned up the city sure you know I mean we had to, you stop the panhandlers you stop at a light they spit on your window and clean it and they want money you know it was uh, crazy back then so he cleaned it up. He really did a good job with that. We went to a nice little cafe yesterday. Most of these guys had never had fresh-made pasta. Oh, nice. So we went down good. and had that. And then Big Matt, he, he calls it a cannoli. <laughs> he says, give me one of them cannolis. <laughs> I was like, a cannoli? <laughs> Even the guy that spoke broken English. He wanted a cappuccino and a cannoli when we finished. Yeah, good. <laughs> good stuff. Well, when I was assigned in the Bronx, we had Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, which is a little Italy in the Bronx. Okay. You've heard of that. Yep. I'm sure right not too far from the Bronx Zoo. Mm-hmm. So uh, Fordham University is right over there. Right. So we would always go there and get something for you know for lunch or dinner, and they would roll cigars right there. That's where you should have went. <laughs> they roll cigars right there for you. We went to Davidoff yesterday on Madison. Oh, okay. What an experience. Okay. Mr. Robert, Mr. Enrique took excellent care of us. Okay. Uh, we, uh, we got to meet some people that we probably would have never met and talked with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's amazing how cigars bring people together. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, uh, you, had a, you had a wedding to go to. And uh, we all stayed after the training at, at North Patchogue. And, oh, there was probably every bit of 50 cigars smoked that evening. Oh, wow. Just yeah. what the firehouse should be. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was absolutely phenomenal. So you made chief. You, you've, you've gone about. Your kids are growing up. You're, you're, living in, you're still living where? In Valley Stream. We're still there. Okay. Yeah, same place. The same place. All right. Yeah, we've been there. If it works, don't don't change it, you know. Right. So. I want to ask you, because I've always wanted to know, I've never asked anybody, <clears throat> the commuting. 
How did you commute? Okay, so when I, like I got appointed and they sent me up to the Bronx. Okay. And it was a drive and it was a toll, which we talked about that. Right. So then when I transferred to East New York, that was like literally a 10, 15 minute commute. It was a home run. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so then as a captain that was still in Queens, no toll. And then when I go to Chief, now you're to- paying a toll and then you're going over the bridge. So the Cross Bronx, if you've been on the Cross Bronx Expressway, you could die on that road. <laughs> I mean, it's like maybe five miles long. <laughs> but let me tell you something. It is so. I would when I would go when I worked in the Bronx, I would never go on the Cross Bronx. My whole time there, maybe like twelve years, maybe I went on the Bronx Cross Bronx. I said, let me try it five times. It looks like it's good. Every time I got screwed. <laughs> so I would just always go through the back roads, you know, to get to where I had to be. Because you get on that road, that's it. You're done. Right. I've always wondered, like you know, I've I've heard of people taking the train or. You no, know. I never took the train. I always drove. Right. You know, I always drove in. There's a lot of places to get to by train. It's, you know, unless you work in Manhattan. Right. If you work in Manhattan, guys would just take the Long Island Railroad to Penn Station and then either walk to their firehouse or take a subway. And that's an easy commute. Sure. You know. If, if everything works on time. Right. But where I worked, you know, East New York, East Flatbush, Jackson Heights. Sure. You know, another thing is getting there might be a little treacherous. <laughs> Did you ever work any subway jobs? Yeah, we had pin jobs. We had people under the trains. We had people, um, you know, caught between the train and the platform. Mm. You know, um, yeah, that's always uh, a challenge. You know, we ended up coming up with another handy talky channel because when you go down the subway, you lose communication. Very well aware. So we <laughs> right. So we we would switch our channels to on the handy talky, and I would either could get it in the chief's car. And on the handy talkie, and it was much better communications, more positive communication. Okay. Yeah, I, um, Chief Rice years ago um, and I were at The Rock, and he took me through the, the subway simulator there that, that mm-hmm. everybody works on. And it was it was fascinating to somebody that's never had to work in that environment. Yeah. I mean, this is literally everything. It can be industrial, agricultural, high-rise, below grade, God knows how many feet below grade. <laughs> You know, it's amazing. Like, John, yesterday we were riding on the Long Island Railroad, and I said, we're going down. And then the guy that was sitting next to us, he was like, we're about underwater now. And he was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then having to ride the escalator up Grand Central, he was. <laughs> well, did you look at the ceiling at Grand Central? It's beautiful. It's beautiful, right? They had just redone that. And there's a lot of history. Like, if you research Grand Central, like, what's behind those walls? Really? Yeah, there's a look. Do a little research. There's a lot of stuff back there, secret passageways and and a lot of stuff with Grand Central. That's cool. Yeah, there's a lot. But yeah, these the anything in the subway that was always my fear getting something in there because it's manpower. And, you know the manpower. You're never going to have enough. Right. Getting down there, packaging somebody up with the smoke, you know, running out of masks. You know, yeah, right. Right. So that's why they came up with the rebreather units. I don't know if you know what a rebreather unit is. Yes, sir, I do. Okay, so the rebreather units that allows you to go into the subway. They have these packs on their back with a big piece of ice on the back of it, and it kind of cools the air. It helps you breathe. But realistically, I don't care what kind of shape you're in. You know, you could operate. I think it's I don't know an hour and a half, whatever the number is. Physically, good luck. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. On paper, it sounds good. Yeah, you can be in there for two hours. Go ahead, Jeremy. You got it, man. <laughs> Yeah, forget it. 
you know. So <laughs> anything in a man, and so then we came up with the subway cars, subway carts that you could transfer your gear on a cart as opposed to carrying it into the subway. So sure. you put all your gear in the subway cart and push it. So a lot of improvements were made, but logistically it, it's, it would be a nightmare. You're going so far down, stretching lines down there, you know, then you have the, uh, the standpipes down. But either way, any way you look at it, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Well, that I just don't know how guys. I mean, it's we. I'll say this, and I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it again. Ninety percent of America's fire departments have not mastered the basic house fire, and then you've got you come here, and it's a damn playground for firemen that is just everything. You know, there is so much. There's so much diversity in what you guys do that it's mind-boggling. Oh, it truly is. I mean, like when I was at 154, we had, it was Shea Stadium, now it's City Field. You had subways, you had the airport, LaGuardia Airport, high-rises, you have multiple dwellings, you have private dwellings, commercial. I mean, you name it. So every, every area you go to, and you have to be good at each one of those types of dwellings. Yeah, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. But once again, we have the manpower we have assignments. We have our books written, and you know, for every type of building, there's different assignments. Which, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of departments, do not have that um, capability because they don't have the manpower. It, you know, reading like ladders three, you know, having access to the libraries is really nice. But reading it, it make you know, it, it's kind of dry reading, mm-hmm. right? But if you can understand it, comprehend it, boy, it's it's a game changer for you and your mindset, you know, just like the forceful entry manual. I mean, the damn thing's an inch and a half thick. Right. And I think, um, I know that New York city does things a little different than say the rest of the world, but the manual that we use is called an IFSTA manual. Mm-hmm. And so that maybe dedicates, I don't know, 10 pages to forcible entry. And then you see the FDNY book and it's that thick and covers every type of lock and every type of tool mm-hmm. and the history. And, and you better know that shit. You have to know it. And, you know, September 11th, uh, like Manhattan, I was never assigned to Manhattan. I've worked in every borough, of course, but I was never assigned in Manhattan. But the doors that you get in Manhattan, those are the the real deal because you're protecting a lot more expensive stuff. The areas I worked in, you know, most times you can just kick the door in. But what they would do in Manhattan, they would go through the lock. Right. Right. Which I would drill with my guys. If we, if, if the opportunity arose, let's not force this door. Let's go through the lock. Sure. And they would do that all the, t- you know, a lot of the times in Manhattan, and then after September 11th, a lot of those senior guys were killed. So that kind of went away a little bit the through the lock method. It's still there. I'm, I'm oh sure, yeah. But you know, not as much as it was. I think back then. I think it's making a comeback. Yeah. Uh, there, the <clears throat> there's a thing that's being pushed, and I don't know if pushed is the right word, but respectful forcible entry mm-hmm. um, that that guys are, that are, you know, they're starting to pick up and understand and, you know, they're they're doing it. We're actually partnering with a company, uh, S&J Entrance out of Farmingdale. Good. Good. And uh, they have a forcible entry uh, prop called the FETS prop, forcible entry training simulator. And what it does is simulates going through that that type of door. So you've got your, you know, your cylinder high, low, you know, thumb locks, everything. Um, even it's even got a rim lock on the back and a panic bar. So mm-hmm. 
folks are actually going to get that with us. That's going to be something else that we take with us for right. force poetry instead of what we've been doing, which is just pulling locks with a K tool or the uh, Maximus Rex that uh, from Firehooks Unlimited. Mm-hmm. But the the ability to train guys, you know, because it, <clears throat> where we're from, the culture is not the rock, right? It's not that de- in, de- in depth, but it's more like, okay, you can force an inward swinging door. And then they come to an outward swinging door on the, I think you guys call it a number three side, right? Is that what the, the back side of a building is? Oh, the, oh yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, the number three side. We'd call it the Charlie side, right? Okay. So you send a guy back there, and he doesn't know how to get the outward swinging door open. You know, he doesn't know how to crush it. He doesn't know how to, you mm-hmm. know, he doesn't know how to defeat the drop bar. So that's a huge discrepancy in what we see when we go places is that the, the level of training isn't the same. You know, when people leave the rock, they're supposed to know what the hell's going on. And we have people that are more focused on helmet colors and certifications. Mm-hmm. We, we encounter that a lot. Now, there are some really good agencies we train with that just want to be better firemen and want their members to be better. So it is refreshing in that aspect, right? So when you, when you shifted gears and you became – you were a battalion chief, and then were you detailed anywhere during that time to, like, training or – what did you do during your time as a battalion chief? Okay, so just one more thing before we move on. Sure. As far as the through the lock method. Yes, sir. Remember, we're professional firefighters. So, you know, we could pull up, yeah, let's just wreck this door here. You know, people, maybe that's all they have. So if you could learn to go through the lock method, you know, we just look so much better. PR. You know, PR. P- the PR. And um, look, if there's is a job, look, I'm forcing that door. Trust me, man. Well, you're not telling me not to do it. We're going to do it. But... If it's, you know, nothing we're not too sure about. Like, for example, one day I was a, as a chief, and we get a run for automatic alarm. We pull up. It's a beautiful house. So it was a nice area. I think it was Bayside, Queens. Nice area, big oak doors, and there's nothing showing. So I got the guys going around, looking in the windows, no smoke. So I get back to the dispatcher, any additional information. It was a CO alarm. Now, that changes things, mm-hmm. right? Right. So I tell the guy, all right, get your ladder. Put up to the second floor, take your mask, take your CO meter. The minute he pops the window, the meter is screaming. Mm-hmm. He masks up, he crawls in, he goes, turns out there was a garage that was on the first floor attached to the house. They left the car running. They must have went away on vacation, moved the cars around, and left the car running. I mean, you know, back in the day with this push button start, you know? Right. You know, now they're more common. Uh, and everything was like just starting to smoke. You saw it was getting ready to go, but. From the car running in that garage created the CO alarm. Now, those people would have came home. They would have opened the door, Boom. and they would have dropped. But my point being is, yeah, we could have popped that front door and destroyed the place, you know. Right. But we went in through the window, and we resolved the issue. The guy came down. He was able to open the garage door. And look, you look more professional. They come home. The house is not destroyed. Right. You know. Well, you, you lose the uh, fighter pilots called losing the ball. Like you lose the focus, mm-hmm. you know, and we sometimes, uh, we get amped up. <laughs> no, we do. And, and I get it. But that's where the bosses come in and say, all right, let's not, you know, let's do this. Let's do that. Right. But once again, you know, you got to look at your department and what manpower and your level of training, level of a, of assignment. There's a lot of issues are involved with it. But if you can, if you remember that, that we're more professional, it looks better. And think of it as your house. Right. You know. Uh, I mean, it happened to me. We were away, and uh, my smoke detector went off, and the guys came, put the ladder up to the second floor, 
popped my window, went in, and it was just a defective alarm. But they could have easily came and destroyed my front door. And now what do I do? I have to come back from vacation or whatever I have to do. So, so it, it does make a difference when you make us look better, more professional. Well, and that's, that's the end result, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I said it the other day, a friend of mine and a mentor of mine who is a major league crew chief umpire, he uh, instilled in me at a very young age that uh, the difference between professionals and amateurs is knowledge of responsibility. It has nothing to do with a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Knowledge of responsibility, whether you're a career or volunteer. So do your job. Right. Right. 100%. Nobody cares. Right. Right. Yeah. Nobody's ever stopped. I mean, everybody in New York City knows that you guys are paid, but nobody's ever stopped anybody and said, hey, are you doing this? Right. Did you ever volley anywhere? No, I never did. No. Okay. I mean, my theory was I, you know, I, there was a, a lot going on. My, I had three kids. They were all involved with something. And, uh, you know, plus it's dangerous, and I realized that. And my theory was if I'm going to work all these hours and then be away from my family and then volunteer and be away again, you know, it just it just didn't fit for me. Sure. And it makes sense. It's not for, you know, yeah. I, I don't particularly enjoy it, mm-hmm. right? So I did, I think, all said and told, I think I volunteered like nine or ten years. But mm-hmm. the rest, I you know, I just... I don't know. It's hard. I don't see doctors and lawyers volunteering right. that much, you right. know, and it's it's a different mindset. That's not anything against anybody because, like, where we were at North Patchogue, those guys are some career, some of them just good old boys that are just like us. They just talk with a different accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and once again, with the volunteers, like, you know, not that I'm a volunteer. I, I know very little about the volunteer. All I know is everybody I talk to that are volunteers, their manpower is down. So if anybody's out there listening – Step up. It, it, listen, you'll, you'll work with the best people that you're ever going to meet in your entire life. Amen. You're going to learn a, a trade. You're going to learn uh, camaraderie, uh, teamwork. You're going to learn a lot. So I would say anybody out there, just maybe step up and go knock on your volunteer door and say, listen, what do I do? How do I start? Yeah. That, that's Absolutely. You know, so if you could do that, I think that would be, because anybody I talk to, they say, yeah, Tom, our, our, our numbers are down. They go to a fire, you know, they don't have anybody. I think uh, 14 was the number <clears throat> the other yeah. day. 14 yeah. guys. So it's just something to think and that's, about. And you know? that was, uh, help was eight minutes behind. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's yeah. a That's a long time to be John Wayne. Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, it's a long time. So, when you became chief, mm-hmm. you were in the battalion, right? And then you you moved on to training. Is that what you did? Right. So I was two thousand three. I got assigned. I, I got promoted to battalion chief, and I was up in the nineteenth battalion. And then um, there were things that would bother me. Like when we would go to a fire, we had what we call the fast truck, which you call the writ. Yes, sir. And our handy talkies. You had one member who was. He would stand outside. The, the fast truck would be outside there. And their handy talkie had a one-inch by one-inch screen. And every handy talkie has a seven-digit ID number, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right? Okay. And that number, is con- every time I talk, my digits come across that screen. You talk, you talk. It just comes across. Doesn't, I mean, there's a number, but you don't know who it belongs to. So if that person gives a verbal mayday, I'm trapped, I'm running out of air, Jeremy, who is it? Tom, I have no idea. Okay. So that bothered me. I'm like, there's got to be a better way. 
So I went to research and development, which talking about research and development, you talk about the gear that we use. Right. I don't think any other fire department has a research and development unit. And think about why you why should you? We right. need a pair of gloves. What does the FDNY use? Okay, that's what we're going to need. The blue gloves. We, we need, <laughs> you know, uh, a hook or we need a, a mask. We need whatever we need. What do they use? That's what we're going to do. So I went to research and development and uh, worked with a great bunch of guys, dedicated guys, smart. And there's a lot going on there, a lot. Right. A lot of equipment, tools going on. And it was enjoyable because you could kind of mold the fire department, shape the fire department, take it to a different path. So this is one of the things that was bothering me. Like, there's got to be a better way. Like, I, I have caller ID on my phone that I know who called me a year ago. <laughs> right, right. I said, so you're telling me with a handy talkie we can't have that? $8,000. So, <laughs> so uh, I call in Motorola. You know, we explain to them what we want. And uh, we end up doing a conference call in R&D. We're all sitting around a table like this talking to Motorola. And anything I said or one of the other brothers said, Motorola was like, yeah, chief, sure, we can give you that. And I'm like, wow, this is like unbelievable, right? Holy cow, I can't believe how easy this is. <laughs> Three months later, the Motorola rep comes, and he's trying to sell me a handy talkie. I'm like, that's not what I want. So I get so angry, I throw him out. They said, chief, calm down. I'm like, the guy didn't listen to what we wanted. Right. So eventually, we ended up coming up with an idea. Uh, this, it's called EFAS, Electronic Fireground Accountability System. And basically, it's caller ID for the handy talkie. There was a lot that we had to get done. So all those handy talkies that have a seven-digit ID, they were the uh, static part of the, the mix. So they were there. The only thing that changed was who had that radio. So this was the outside vent radio. Who has it? Today, Jeremy has it. The forcible entry team, who has that? The Irons guy, who has that radio? Tom Riley has that radio. So once and then, so to, to get that done, we had to do what they call EBF4, electronic BF4. We used to always do the, the writing list, it's called a BF4, I don't know where that came from, on paper, with carbon paper. So you would make two copies, and one would go in your pocket, and then when you went to a job, it was soaking wet, you couldn't read it anyway. Right. And the other one was supposed to be on the rig, then in case there was a fatal fire, the chief could go to the rig, pull the rig, the EBF4 and say, the, the BF4 and see who was working and who we're looking for. Is that still done to this day? So now it's done to this day, but it's done electronically. Okay. So then we had to get everybody's name, put them into a database. So you would do your riding list electronically. So now that would go, become electronic and that would tie into the EFAS so that when you keyed your mic, you knew Tom Riley had, was the officer that day. Okay. So when, and when you keyed your mic, it, would, it comes up on the chief's vehicle on the MDT, which is right. where we get all, all our responses from. Right. Mobile data terminal. Mobile data, te right. So that was EFAS, and it was a great project. It cost us maybe a million dollars to build it, design it, and put it in every uh, battalion and division vehicle. So if you listen to a fire and you'll hear them say EFAS to command, that's the member that's in the car monitoring that. When it when that person hits there on our handy talk, because we have an orange button, yes, made button. When you hit that button, it pops up and it says Tom Riley, uh, Lattice thirty three officer. It tells you, you know, that I'm in trouble. Right. And by our assignments with our manuals, we kind of know where that person, sh th that unit, should be. Right. 
unless we have a collapse, then you know all all bets are off. But it just made the job much safer because instead of having this guy outside with a handy talkie with just numbers going by that didn't mean anything. Right. Now, when it when it comes up, you have a name. And when you hit that emergency alert button, it would stay red on the screen. It wouldn't go away. Right. You can't turn off your radio and make it go away. Somebody right. has to it's reset there. it. It has to be. Right. It's there all the time. And then as that fast truck guy in the car, the E-Fast firefighter, if I know you and I'm, you're usually very calm and all of a sudden now you're talking agitated or whatever, like, hmm, something's going on with Jeremy. Let me just highlight him. Now I can keep an eye on him. You know, and I say, you know, Chief, Jeremy seems a little off today. Maybe something's wrong. Let's keep an eye on him. And then, you know, we can monitor you that way. Right. You know? So, um, and then you could also do a roll call with it, which I wasn't, a f- it, was a, it was a tool uh, to do a roll call, have everybody just key their mic three times, and you would pop up on the screen and populate. Okay. Wasn't crazy about it. Only certain times you could use that, but it had that capability, you know. Right. We call the orange button the dispatcher appreciation button because <laughs> ours go to communications. Right. So communic- we don't have that system in the, in the buggy. Um, so that, that goes to communications, and it's up to somebody else there to relay to command. It's, it's still, um, what do you want to call it, convoluted, mm-hmm. right? It's not direct, right? but it's better than nothing. Right, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Like with us, so when when at the scene, if somebody hits their emergency alert button, I'm getting it right there. That's it's correct. It's not going to the dispatcher and then coming back to me. There's not a delay. Right. So, and the reason why there was always fight about the fast truck team want to keep them in place, and my thing was one member has to sit into the chief's vehicle. Yeah, but chief, you're taking away from one of our members, and blah 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 blah. And I said, listen, if I have the extra manpower, by all means. Keep your team together and put that extra manpower who's on, who's on light duty or something in the chief's car. But other than that, one of your guys stays in the car. But why? That's what, and I said, once again, like I said earlier, you have the best truck company in the world, right? Right. And you don't put a guy in the chief's car and a person gives a verbal mayday that nobody hears and he dies. Guess what? Your truck company is crap. Sure. So, and this go, the reason wh- where I came from this from we had a fire in Brooklyn, and a probie, he was down the basement. He got separated from his inside team, and he gives a verbal mayday, real low. Help, I'm trapped in the basement. I'm out of air. Nobody heard it because the saws, the, the rig's going, the towel ladder's going, right? Right. One of the chiefs had pulled up. who was a friend of mine, and he, he said, did you hear that verbal mayday? If he didn't hear that, that guy dies. They get. They finally find him. He had forty nine percent CO in his body. Wow. Fifty, he would have been gone. He, you know, he ended up coming back to work. But so that was my theory. And I, I never even back in speaking to the commissioner about it. The commissioner Casano, I said that firefighter has to remain in the chief's vehicle, and that's where he is to this day. Unless we have extra manpower, then. The fast truck team can stay intact, and the one member will stay in the car. But somebody has to always be in that car. So is that is that like your aid for the for well, the, the tour? Well, my aid is helping me out. I'm running the fire, and I'm oh, saying, okay, okay, I need a, a, an additional alarm. I need an extra ladder and truck. You know, uh, okay. engine and truck. I need this. I need that. My aid is separate. Okay, he's, he's got a lot of work to do. To right. Help. He's like he's my aid. Right. So he's helping me out at this fire. You know, and I'm handling dealing with all the units that are in the building, dispatching them, talking to this one, talking to that one. And then I say, Berger, I need this, you know, t- t- Tony, I need that. And they would transmit that 
to the dispatcher or given size ups, whatever I'm given, the fast truck member is separate. He's part of the fast truck team. Okay. So, okay. So, and the problem was the manpower, which they're down on manpower now. So, we don't have that luxury to say, okay, you're on light duty. You're going to be the fast truck firefighter or the EFAST firefighter for the tour. Right. You know, and just ride with the deputy or the battalion and sit in the car and, and take care of business. Wow. That's that's a whole different world that, that we're not used no, to. No, you're not. <laughs> and it, it, like I said, it's a different animal, you know, but that EFAST was a game changer. Like right. Between doing the EBF4, electronic BF4, and the um, EFAST, it it really brought us to a whole new level. It was like caller ID for handy talking. Yeah. Think of it that way. Yeah. You know? So is the is the writing list, even though it's digital, do do the bosses still carry an actual copy? Yes, they do. Okay. They do have a copy and they put supposed to put a copy on the rig on the uh, the, the desk inside the rig there. Okay. But but if something goes down, the chief can pull it up on his in the car. Right. And say, Okay, we don't have their ride list but we know who's working. Okay. You know, okay. they can get it that way. And then what you would do is, you know, once everybody had their riding list settled, because sometimes it takes a little while, you, we would print them out in the office. So now when you responded, you had all your companies with their riding list. So even if the officer didn't have it, you had yours. And the division, of course, would carry riding list for the whole division. Wow. So we were killing a lot of trees, but we were keeping the brothers. You know, at least we knew who was, if there was a problem, who could have, you know, be missing. Sure. You know, well, it beats standing along the street for sure, and your class A's. Well, hundred percent. And now, once again, back, uh, I forget what year it was, maybe nineteen ninety. Uh, we had a firefighter got killed, and um, they didn't know who it was. They thought it was somebody else, and they were actually going to that other person's house, oh. which was crazy to make a notification, which was really jumping the gun. Sure, but. We've come such a long way. We between EFAS, between having your names on the back of your coat, between having uh, your unit number on your, your SCBA. Right. So the accountability and the um, has gotten has gotten so much better, right. safety wise. Back in the day when you came in, was there much? No, we had nothing. We had we were going to fires and dungarees and you know we <laughs> three quarter we, boots yeah we had nothing we had uh you know these canvas work gloves that you get from uh, home depot you know and the minute you went to a fire like an ember would go down your glove and so Ooh. yeah yeah there was uh i mean i remember one fire i had so there's another one i'll remember but um <laughs> we were, of course didn't have a mask and i had a nozzle i was in 236 and the fire was burning so hot all the tar dripped down and it dripped on the whole right side of my face Mm. Right, so that hurt a little bit, you know. You bet, you know. But of course, I didn't give up the nozzle. I wasn't giving Perone the nozzle, you know. So <laughs> continued, continued to put the fire out, and then I come out and I forgot about it. They're like, "Whoa, what's all over your face? Like your shirt is black." My whole right side of the face was black with tar. I'm like, I look in the mirror. I'm like, "Holy, what are they going to do about that?" Went to the emergency room and they put um, baby oil on it. And it just loosens up the tar, and it all came off. No so, burns? Well, I got burned, but look, still looking good-looking I mean, guy. Yeah, there you handsome. Go. <laughs> I mean, handsome, you know, so, very dapper. <laughs> yeah, so that was, uh, yeah. So what did you do with the gloves? Okay, so <clears throat> you had to bring up the gloves. Had, had to. Okay, so uh, the commissioner 
Cassano wanted us to get new gloves. We had these gloves, and they were great, but they were like an oven mitt. I mean, there was no dexterity. There was nothing. So we go through the whole process, put an RFI, request for information out there, get all these glove companies to respond with the gloves that could fit the parameters that we're requesting. Dexterity, blah, 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 you know? So all these gloves came back, and then we narrowed it down to, I believe it was six gloves. So now we had to put them through the paces to see which glove was going to be the glove that we selected. It was a big, long process, as you can imagine. I'm sure. Right? So this, but we ran this project, like, unbelievably. It was great. Very precise to the point. So we go through the whole thing. We ended up with a winner. And the second glove was pretty good, but it was close. And then the third glove. But the first glove, and I knew from the beginning that was going to be the glove. It just... The way it felt, it fit all our parameters. So we get this glove finally. And now to swap over gloves, because as of 1,800 hours this day, we're getting rid of the oven mitt and we're using this glove. So it was a whole, so all the stuff we had to put together and figure this out, how to coordinate this. So at 1,800 hours, right? Okay, boom, change the gloves over. Get rid of those oven mitts and use these gloves. So we do all that and the guys love the gloves. We're going to fires, and the guys, are, they're dexterous. They could do things with it. They could, you know, turn on their mask. They could use the ropes. They could do a lot of things with it. Somewhere along the line, and to this day, I don't know what happened, but the company uh, decided to cut corners. So now guys start getting burnt with these gloves. So the commissioner's saying, Tom, what's going on? I'm like, chief, I have no idea. So fast forward, find out. Mm. Get the, I said, give me the glove. We cut them open. They were completely different than the glove that we contracted with. Ooh. Now, once again, like I don't even understand this because logically, financially, you, you buy this glove from the New York City Fire Department. You're locked in. You're going to make a killing. Sure. And like I said earlier, every other fire department, I need new gloves. What kind of gloves? What does the FDNY wear? Okay, there we go. Right. So maybe... And they were making money on us. But now you could double the money for everybody else. So, so why they switched this around, the company went out of business and, of course, came up in business as a new name. I don't know what the new name is, but they lost this whole contract. So now, once again, now we got to take all those gloves back. And it wasn't all the gloves. It was only from a certain lot number when they decided to change this makeup. So I'm talking to the commissioner, and he says, let's, let's go to the number two glove. I said, well, that makes sense, but let's just say that glove, we have a problem with it. The brothers will never trust us again. Let's go back to the oven mitt. We know that that glove, it works. At least we could get back to that glove, and then from there we'll go forward and look for another glove. So once again, 1,800 hours, we had to take all those gloves out of the field. 11,000 pairs. And put, put all those gloves back into the field and collect all those gloves because you don't want the brothers using those gloves. Right. Monster. Holy Monst- shit. Monster and a half. So This is 2011, yeah? Uh, yeah, you probably know better than I do. Once Holy again, I'm not shit. a date guy. I, I threw this together like this morning. So. <laughs> You're awesome. Everything's, everything's a blur. No. It, but, uh, yeah, so that, that's was, crazy. that was interesting, yeah. yeah. Wow. Is that where the blue glove came from? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, that's that's iconic with the with the uh, black turnout gear, the blue glove. Mm-hmm. So there was a a thing here that I wanted to ask you about the uh, 
the the safety defects on the helmets. Okay, right. So the the Ben Two helmets, for whatever happened, the eagle on the front was separating from the frame, so it became an issue that one or two guys, believe it or not, got caught. A, a wire, you know, comes down. Sure. They got caught in there, and now they they can't get out. Mm. So we had to come up with an idea how to repair that. So we designed this whole fix. Now, once again, how do we go about replacing or repairing all these helmets? 11,000. 11,000, right? <laughs> so once again, we had to get involved, figure out this whole strategy, get this piece, repair all these helmets, and ASAP, because you don't want them in the field, you know. Right. So... That was another big project. So what was the fix? The fix was like a little bracket that you just put behind there, and it was like an extra screw and a little uh, bolt okay. that would hold the eagle closer to the, to the, uh, the frame so it wouldn't separate. Because as it separated, there was a, a way f- to get caught up. And that's what the other thing I always tell the brothers. When- Hello? Hello? Okay. Sorry about the technical difficulty there. I would always tell the brothers, you want to keep as low profile as possible. So, for example, with this Ben 2 helmet, with this eagle separating, that was a place for the Ys. Because as you get a fire, Ys fall, everything drops down. Right. You get hung up on that, and now shit's on. This thing's flashing over. You're not getting out. Keep a low profile as possible. Don't have tools hanging off your belt and off your helmet and off this, off that. Because it... Trust me, if it's there, it's going to get caught up on something. Right. That was interesting, too. Did you, were you there when the guys were asking the guys from L.A. this weekend about their axes on their belts? And No, I wasn't. Oh, that was, that was, that was glorious. To, oh, you know, do you guys really carry that? You know, and it was an interesting conversation because they use them a lot, you mm-hmm. know, but they wear them on their hip. Yeah. Uh, yeah, once again, that's, like I said, you know, you don't want to be crawling down a hallway, you know, when things like that happen. Because if it's gonna, if it's gonna fall, it's gonna find you. When I was at R and D, they, Scott came out with a new mask, and they they swore to me it was designed. Nothing has changed. So I took their word for we put it out there. But what it was, one of the filters was just like an inch or half an inch taller. And of course, I start getting calls. Chief, yeah, well, I'm crawling around a fire. Why it came down? I got caught up on this filter. I'm like, what? Sure enough, it was uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Took all those masks out of service. Hey, that wasn't there. <laughs> what did you think of the, the Scott site when it came out, the one with the camera in it? Did, were, did you see that? Were you still on no, the job? No. Oh, that was a, that was a glorious day. No. They uh, took the AV3000 face piece, right? And on the right side, they, they mounted a camera. Okay, yes. And then the, in the corner down here, you had like a nickel-sized screen so you could see the thermal imaging camera, but you had to have two separate batteries plus your air pack batteries to keep up with, and then it had to pair on Bluetooth. And, oh, it was it was a heavy face piece. Right. It was heavy. It just didn't feel right. You know, and it, it just, I, for a guy that likes to wear his helmet lower, mm-hmm. you know, that would, it would prohibit you from, it felt right. off balance. Right. You know, it didn't last long. Well, once we talk about the face pieces, Scott came to me with um, a face piece with a voice meter in it, which was perfect. Okay. We could be crawling around the fire, and I could be talking like this. But there were a lot of issues with it that if it gets knocked out, I'm in a toxic atmosphere. Right. I'm going to take a feed. 
So brought it back to him, say, no, no, this is no good, you guys. This. And they basically Scott said, listen, take it or leave it, Chief. And I said, guess what? Leave it. Because mm. I can't give this to the brothers and have them crawling around and this thing gets ripped off and somebody dies. Right. So, right. So we, I, I'm not sure if they have them now. Like I said, I retired in 17. But right. it was a great tool, but it just, it just didn't um, stay in there good enough. So you retired. You're living, you're living the dream? Right. Well, I mean, do we have time? Oh, yeah, back? yeah, yeah. yeah. So while you I brought was, up retirement. I wanted to talk about retirement. Oh, no. No, you're uh, good. Well, we could talk about that, too. But yeah. So while I was there, there was, that was, we had EFAS. We had the gloves. Uh, we had the um, air recon chief. So when you get a third alarm, they dispatch a helicopter out of um, Fort Floyd Bennett Field. Okay. You know about that? No. Okay, so they dispatch a, a helicopter out of Floyd Bennett Field, and they fly to the fire and give you an aerial view, give the chief an aerial view of the fire. Okay. So there are certain battalions that are trained to be air recon chiefs. So when there's a fire, okay, it's a third alarm, okay, battalion 5-8, you're the air recon chief. They go to Floyd Bennett Field, and then they get in the helicopter, and they fly to the scene and give the chief an aerial view. Which is a great idea, right? Right. Sounds expensive. It is expensive, <laughs> yes. Because for every hour that those flight, those helicopters are up, I think it's like three hours maintenance or something. It's, it's crazy. Then you're flying with the NYPD. You know, they're, they're the, uh, the, the pilots. So how does that work? Well, it was interesting. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I come on board at R&D, I'm asking about the air recon chiefs. And I said, well, what do they do if the helicopter crashes? They all have the pontoons. They go down in the water. Because the chiefs and the aides did not have a PFD. Okay. So I said, what do they do? Well, what they do is they hold on to the pilot. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> Come here, little buddy. <laughs> I said, how do you think that's going to last? So anyway, we came up, we came up with uh, a, a PFD for the chiefs. Okay. And we came up with a helmet with an integrated communication system where the chief in the, can talk to the pilot, can talk to the dispatcher, and can talk to the chief on the ground at the scene. So that was all designed through research and development. Is the relationship with NYPD as rough as everybody thinks it is? It's not. I mean, look, we're, we're all, you know, you know, high testosterone, and we all get along well. I mean, you do have your issues here and there, you know what I mean? Like that day I went to, to Floyd Bennett, we walked in, they were like, you know. But by the time we were done, after I bought my cake, we were good, we were laughing, having coffee, everything was fun. So it's, it's not like everybody blow. it's not. It's like not like that. TV. No, no, it's not. Do, yeah. do you have firefighter bars or police bars? What? With certain guys, yeah, I mean they do. I mean everybody gets along. It's, I mean you're gonna always have your issues. It's not I can't say it's absolute, but most part everybody gets along. We're all doing the same job. Right. The problem is they have duplication of services. Like you know, we have the you know the Hearst tool. The PD has the Hearst tool. They're trying to use your theirs, and you know what I mean. So that's where the, the the issues come in. So how does that work? Let's say you catch a pin job on the Parkway, mm -hmm. right? They get dispatched. You get dispatched. They. They arrive after you. How does that? Who who's in charge? I guess is the 
Well, there's a whole matrix, and I forget all the ins sure. and outs of the matrix because I've been retired. But if you get a pin job and it's on the highway, so NYPD gets in first, they'll be operating, and you know we'll probably assist. And uh, FDNY gets first, we'll be operating. But the matrix specifically says who's in charge of certain things. So, and I forget. No, that's who, who's in charge. But yeah, that sometimes becomes an issue. You know, um, you're you're working. They're trying to do something different. You know, and they're not listening to you because you're not in their chain of command. Right. You know. Yeah, that can be problematic. Right, that can be problematic. <laughs> but I mean, most times things go smoothly. Everybody works together. Sure. I mean, you're always going to have your issues. You know, no matter what. Right. No, that, it makes total sense. It's uh, it's a different world. Right. You know, like uh, <clears throat> one of my buddies worked at 108 truck, mm-hmm. and it's it's 108. 108, sorry. Not 108, they call it 108. 108. 108, there you go. All right, 108. So, you know, right by the Williamsburg Bridge. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, I was I was younger, and I was like, what is all this? You know, the PD's got this big rig sitting there, and, you know, it's next door to, you know, the police department. And he's like, they just they just go with us, mm-hmm. you know, or they, they get out the door quicker. And, you know, I'm, I, it baffles people that don't understand or don't speak New York City. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a different world. It's mm-hmm. a different dynamic, right. for sure. So another thing, getting back to the EFAS, the Electronic Fire Ground Accountability System. Sure. Um, we were testing and drilling, and so <laughs> this is pretty funny. So I'm at R&D, Research and Development, and uh, I want to test EFAS. So I, I get assigned a number, Battalion 74. There's no Battalion 74, but the way the system is designed, there's only certain numbers. So they make me Battalion 74. So every time I'm at the at our research development, I would have the radio on. If a job came in, I'd call the dispatcher. I'd say, put Battalion 74 in that box. Now you have your assignments, and they put Battalion 74. Guys like, who's Battalion 74? So we'd write, <laughs> respond in. And there was like a chat room, which I never went on, but they're like, I bet you it's a bunch of old guys and uh, you know all this stuff. Nobody knew what we were. We were like double, <laughs> double secret. So we would respond to fires with the Battalion 74 rig. And I would see if EFAS would load up and if it would work. And then I would show the guys and trying to get them on board to buy into this whole thing that we, you have to do the riding list. You have to do this. Otherwise, EFAS doesn't work. Right. So we did that. And so now with that, I discovered an issue with the handy talkie batteries. So when I first came on, the batteries, they had like a, a, a color on it, yellow, red, yep. blue. I had no clue what that meant. No clue. Nobody ever told me there was just a color. Turns out what that color is, that's for the radio shops. They know that when they come into the firehouse, those, maybe they're doing the red color this month. That has to be taken back. No? How's that, better? Okay, sorry. You're all right. Got to stop talking with my hands. It's a a New York thing. We get it. Got to stop talking with my hands. (laughs) So they would know they'd come to the firehouse and say the red batteries had to be reconditioned. And what that means is they take them to the radio shops. They have a room at the size of this, maybe twice as big. They put this handy talkie battery into this machine. It charges it and discharges it three times. And it takes a long time. And what that does is takes away the memory out of the battery. Hmm. So in other words, you have a battery that's fully charged. You put it into the charger and it goes green, fully charged. Guess what? Maybe only an inch of that battery is fully charged. The rest is memory. 
So this reconditioning would wipe out the memory and recharge it. So you'd come in, you know, I come to relieve you for the day. You didn't have one run, but I take your handy talkie battery, I put it back on charge. So I'm creating this problem to make it worse. Because now the charge is not a full charge. It's only, you know, a half a charge. Sure. So you would go out, you know, get the, the battery, you go out, you go to the store, you go get the meal, you go for a run. Next thing you hear the battery chirping. I just charge this thing. Well, that's because there was no memory there. So then we get, a company gets a fire, and they contact me. They were in the fire, and they were trapped, and they hit the emergency alert button. And when you hit the emergency alert button, your handy talkie goes from 2 watts to 5 watts. So when it goes from 2 watts to 5 watts, it draws a lot of power. Mm. That battery died. I didn't know that. So now this, it's actual fire. The guy's trapped. He hits his emergency alert button. Chief's trying to talk to him. He can't because his battery is dead. Because oh, he just enough. went from zero to, to, from two watts to five watts, zapped the battery because of that charge memory that I was telling you about. Right. So I do a whole bunch of testing. I get brand new batteries, and I have the guy keying the mic, keying the mic, keying the mic, getting it down to where it's about to die. And uh, we do it, and sure enough, it works. And Radio Shop says, no, that doesn't happen. I'm like, it does. So we had to redesign the whole battery reconditioning thing. Came up with a tag that on the tag on each battery, instead of having a yellow or a red color, it would be a tag and it said, due for reconditioning on this date, every six months. So now anybody could see that. You'd come in, you'd see that, oh, this is due for reconditioning. And you would put it in the, you know, send it back to the radio shop so they would recondition it. Wow. So we had to rewrite the whole communications manual to put that in there and... But it kept the brother safer because, you know, you knew you had a better battery. That was that, that when it said it was charged, it was fully charged. So the tabletop chargers that recondition, you know, like you have the, the green. They don't recondition. They just charge. Okay. In the firehouse, you mean? Well, we have the, the ones now that have a orange amber light. Yeah. And, like, you can put it in, <clears throat> uh, like on the, uh, was it the APX 8000? Is that right? XTS 5000. Yeah, one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that You drop it in, and it'll recondition. And oh, it okay. takes for hours. Right, right, right. So maybe that's where they've come to after, you know, what we uncovered. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. But they would take hours to the radio shops, and this room was tremendous at these banks of these reconditioners that you would put the batteries in. And it would take hours right. to go through this. And it would come back with your red tag on it. And now it was due in another... Six months. Whatever. But nobody knew. I didn't know. I, I, I never saw them come to the firehouse. Maybe they came when I was <laughs> not there or out. I don't know. 1800 this day. Right. So now with this new system that we designed, if you saw this was having a problem, you would put that battery on the side and say, this is due for reconditioning. That's... That's uh, that's huge. Yeah. That's huge. Another thing was mass. We had spare mass in the battalion. And in the mass, we had a pack tracker. Yeah. Right? So you know what the pack yeah. tracker yeah, is, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the problem was with that, if you didn't have that logged into the computer, when somebody went, their pass alarm went off on their mask, you didn't know who it belonged to. So once again, that became another issue. We had to design how to get the pack trackers out there and have them you know, tied into who they belong to. This is the, the Irons man. This is the can man's mask. It's a spare. It's not Battalion 19-1. 
it's Battalion 19 Spare. Who, who owns that mask? Who's wearing that mask? Because before that, you didn't know who was missing. Mm. That was another issue we had to come up with, another thing. So you were you investigated um, the fatal fires for the city? Yes, we did. When I, so then I was I went to safety for a while. I was detailed to safety, still assigned to the 19th. But And then we had to take all these classes, uh, accident investigation, uh, fatal fires, uh, how to work with SOC, all their different trainings. So we would investigate fi- fatal fires and do interviews, fatal accidents or major accidents. So we would do all that stuff. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You've had your fingers in just about everything. Yeah, it was fun. It really was. I mean, it was a lot of good stuff, a lot of dedicated uh, people doing the, all these jobs. But that's... You know, that's what it's all about, you know, and if you can make a difference in the job and make it safer and save one life. And that was my theory with EFAS and just like Mike's theory with the door. If we could keep the brothers, look, no matter what we do, the job is never 100 percent safe. You never know when something's going to collapse or something's going to go wrong or you're going to have a heart attack or whatever. But if we can eliminate as much as we can to make it as safe as we can, that's that was my goal. I went to too many funerals. Yeah. I mean, I came on 79. I don't don't even know how many. Forget about September 11th. We lost 343. But prior to that, uh, without taking that out of there, I don't know how many we lost. You know? Right. So, um, yeah. uh, That's heavy stuff. I mean, that's that's not light lifting. That's a a lot of things that folks don't see that, you know, that a lot of things come from. Uh, you know, they always say, you know, you hear people from the South say things about people from the North, right? And I say, well, everything originated on the East Coast up there, and it matriculated elsewhere. Everybody wanted to go West and wanted to go South. It didn't come from the West East. Mm-hmm. And trying to explain that to people, especially in this job, you know, that there's certain brands of fire apparatus that aren't in this city. There's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. There's an absolute reason. Yeah, 100%. So bringing that up, we had, they, they gave us, when I was in 236, they gave us a green fire truck. It ain't easy being green? Yeah, it was. <laughs> and Mike Perone in the firehouse, he painted. He's so talented, that guy. He could paint, <laughs> he could draw. He, he's unbelievable. He's, a, he's an amateur comedian. And he's a comedian, too. <laughs> but he painted this uh, mean green machine on one of our walls in the firehouse. But anyway, talk about rigs that don't belong. It was an American La France, and... Not knocking American La France, but it just... They're out of business. I know. Well, whatever. Okay, so we can say that. <laughs> yeah. But it, the, the rig just did not hold up to the streets in East New York or all these areas. Right. It just did not hold up, you know. And that was a safety initiative, wasn't it? The green truck? It was... People would walk by and say, where are you guys from? Oh, we're from North Carolina. You're North Carolina? Yeah, we're just up here because they need help. Nobody knew. We were just telling the story. <laughs> Jesus. You know? Because all they see was red fire trucks. And like, so where's the screen? Oh, yeah, North Carolina. We're just, wow, that's pretty, yeah, okay. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever, you know. What's and they wrong went, with you? <laughs> so, so that rig, like you said, did not hold up. The American La France did not hold up at all, you know. Um, so, uh, I just don't even know what to say to you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think about it, though, that, that – there's no there's no business for some place you know some some things have no place other right. than just looking pretty and right. looking pretty doesn't do the job 
I mean, my thing is somebody always makes a decision on something, right? It goes through the chain, this one, and we get to you, Jeremy. Jeremy, what do you think? Green fly trucks? Tom, great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> huh? So anyway, somebody made that decision, and it, it was a major fail. <laughs> he says, great idea. You know? Charge forth. <laughs> um, another thing. So, yeah, so, so safety chief, in the being, I got certified as a hazmat tech one and two, became a fire instructor level one and two. So, you know, different classes and all these other things, you know. Hell of a run. And then in 2007, Miami Beach uh, was putting the battalion chief's test together. So I went and helped them uh, do the assessment and design the exam. So we did that in 2007. What would you think of being down there? It was pretty cool. Uh, when I was there, they had what I, something I just remember. They had all these high-rises back then, and they were calling them, them see-throughs. I'm like, what's a see-through? <laughs> There's all these apartments, and nobody was living in them. So now I, I think that has changed. But back in 2007, I guess if you had money, if you invested in one of those apartments, you could be doing pretty good. But all those high-rise, there was like nobody in them. That's the only thing I kind of remember about Miami. But it was, it was fun. The we, food's great. Yeah, the food's great. Meeting the guys and helping them put this exam together, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that, uh, that's, I love Miami. I try to go twice a year. Mm -hmm. uh, Big Matt, he, he really loves Miami. He just loves Miami. You got to hang out with him a little bit. Um, you know, I, I we're planning a trip right now to go. So it's, uh, you know, that's my kind of town. And one of my friends is a police pilot down there. So oh, nice. we get to hang out and go smoke cigars and, okay. you know, do things that, I'll tell you this, they just took delivery of these new helicopters for the fire department. So where we're at, if you need, <clears throat> if you need a air ambulance to transport somebody to the hospital, you call the county and the county will, you know, the county asset comes for the fire department. But the police department's completely separate. So they have their own fire department pilots, you know, mm -hmm. their firemen in the back, the paramedics, you know. And they, it's <laughs> this thing's like an office. There's so much room back wow. there. It feels like you could play tennis. That's wow. how much room's back in these helicopters. But two pilots and two bases, one north, one south. And I think they've got four total birds. So mm. they can... Wow. You know, they've spent millions on that program. Well, that was our thing with talking about the air recon. We talked about the fire department because we have guys that are, you know, in the military that were pilots, helicopter pilots. But the cost is just prohibitive to buy those helicopters. And like I said, for every hour of flying, I think it's three or four hours of maintenance. So the fuel, so it, it, it never panned out. And so that's why we use the police department's helicopters. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's such an expense, right? Oh, it's, yeah. Um, in 2010, uh, we have this, it's called uh, FOMI, Fire Officers Management Institute, and it's given by Columbia University. So I went to that, and when you go there, they give you an assignment. And my assignment, along with three other chiefs, was how to improve mutual aid. So we respond, our Bronx companies respond north, and there's companies up there that are volunteer. They respond in with the New York City Fire Department. We respond out east. You have fire companies out in Long Island. In, the, in uh, Rockaway Beach, there's volunteers. So how do we operate together? So if I'm in, at that building and I'm out front and I'm running the building and now there's volunteers from Westchester in there, how do I communicate with them? I can't, right? I can only talk to my guys. So that was my project and uh, we worked on that, and uh, 
it worked out good, you know, and I'm sure they're, they're using some of it, you know. But it was, uh, it, it's, it's a problem that you come upon every day. Because sometimes you may get a box that's in Westchester. The Bronx units get dispatched. People don't know whether it's Bronx or Westchester. They call the fire department. Fire department gets there. They're not going to, okay, we can't cross that line. That's Westchester. They go there and they're operating. And then vice versa. Right. We, we have people, I've witnessed it. The, the wreck will happen in this district and end up in another district, and they will fight over who's going to cut. Right. You, know, you think of gangs in New York type shit, yeah. right? Yeah. You know that, yeah, I, I have no time for that shit. No. Kings and kingdoms is my coined phrase. I agree. Yeah, I don't have time for that. So you retire out, right? What, what's, what's life in retirement like well, now? Well, I got promoted to deputy. Oh shit! We yeah. forgot all about that. Yeah. You got the big. What, how many? How many? What'd you get on your collar? Like it's, a, it's an eagle. Yeah. Oh, oh I, you know what? I just thought of a great story. I gotta tell you about. Oh the shit! Eagle. Listen to this. <laughs> so now, um. So okay, so all right, so I get promoted to deputy. Okay. In uh, November 2014, November 13th, like three weeks later, they tell me I have cancer. I had cancer in my right eye. Mm. And in 2018, went to my left eye. So, P.S., I could not go to any fires. So, they cut my career short at 38 years, you know. Mm. <laughs> but, so anyway, while I'm at Fort Taunton, and Fort Taunton, I was assigned there. I was assigned to the 13th Division, but I was detailed to Fort Taunton, which is one of our training facilities. We have Randall's Island and Fort Taunton. So, I was running that training facility. Fort Taunton's EMS? For, well, EMS is there. Yeah. And it's right by the Throgs Neck Bridge. If you're on the Cross Island Parkway, before you go over the Throgs Neck, you look to the right. Yep. And it's Fort Totten. It goes actually back to the Civil War days. It was built in like 1860 or something like that. It's really pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and if you go there, there's a fort, and it's, it's protecting Little Neck Bay. And then Fort Schuyler on the other side, there's a fort there. So they had the cannons kind of protecting the water back in the day so we were we're training a lot of firefighters in the cfrd and fort taunton is a lot of uh, private dwellings which were the officers buildings so we needed larger buildings we can't train hundreds of guys in a little private dwelling so the the army owned a lot of these buildings that we needed. So I had to negotiate with the Army to get some of the buildings that we could use, like the gymnasium. So we're negotiating back and forth, and this officer I was dealing with, I didn't know who he was, never met him. He was in charge of all the forts on the East Coast. So the meeting's on, the meeting's off. So one weekend, my wife and I, Cheryl and I, are going away. It's a Friday, and it's in March, and we get this weird snowstorm. And they say, Chief, the meeting's on today. So I'm like, all right. So I tell my wife, I said, Cheryl, listen, I'll, just, I'll go to the meeting, and then we'll go from there. So I go to the meeting, and uh, I meet this Army colonel. Gets out of, out of the rig, you know, Army Ranger. Real deal, right? Right. <clears throat> so we're going through the building, and we're talking, and there's just something about the guy. I don't know what it is. But I looked at him and I said, you know what? We were on the pile together September 11th. He looks at me and he says, you, you, you were Captain Riley from Ladder 154? He hugs me and he like, he gets all emotional. So what happened was September 11th, to back up, we're working on the pile. 
right? And out of nowhere, you, I don't know if you've seen those aerial pictures of the Trade Center after the collapse. Tons of guys. This Army Ranger comes up to me. Why? To this day, I don't know. He says, you know, Cap, can I? And he's in his Army fatigues. But at this point, I don't trust anybody. We right. just got blown up. So I'm trying to vet this guy out. Turns out he knows this guy. Okay, fine. So I let him dig with us. We dig, we tunnel, <laughs> we tunnel in, we go down, and we end up in the mezzanine. We break through a wall, and we come out, and we're in a Halloween store with masks and skeletons. Oh, <laughs> it, was <bizarre. laughs> it was bizarre. It was bizarre. Just right. what you'd expect to see right. in Midtown, right? right. So, <laughs> so anyway, so now we're, we're tunneling together, and next thing you know, he goes on his own way, and I go my way. I never see the guy. Fifteen years later... I'm in charge of Fort Totten. I got the eagle on my collar. I'm negotiating with the Army, with this guy, and it turns out to be the same guy 15 years later. Holy shit. That I wasn't even going to go to this meeting, but I went at the last minute. Right. So now he, he, he says, Tom, I got to do a speech on September 11th. He says, I'm doing it here, and I want you to be here. I'm going to call it the miracle of Fort Totten. So I said, all right. So I come there that day, and he tells the whole story that would digging on September 11th, I meet this captain, and then fast forward 15 years later, I meet this guy again. And uh. we, now we both have eagles, because he's a colonel and I'm a deputy chief. Uh. So now he's dragging me. We're going, so I take him with us to Manhattan the whole day. We do the whole ceremony. And uh, he's dragging me. I gotta show you a picture. I'm like, what? what? He takes me to the museum. In the museum is a picture of us at the pile. Damn. Digging. Wow. I said, how'd you even know this picture existed? He goes, look, look, look. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a cool day. Similar story to that. Uh, standing at the checkout line in Alaska. Lived a number of years in Alaska. It's actually where I met Christy at. And uh, man's name's John Swires. <clears throat> so little town, you know, only 15 miles of mainline road. It's an island. Um, their claim to fame is it's the largest city <laughs> by landmass <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Uh, it's in Sitka, Alaska. So um, standing there in the grocery store, and John is standing two lines over from me, and he does this fixation stare at me. And I see the guy looking at me, and I just kind of like didn't look at him. And I look back, and he's looking at me. He's still looking at me, and he's looking at me. We go out to the car, putting the groceries in the car, and he uh, he walks up behind me, and he says, Hey, Buckeye. I turned around. He was a major in the Salvation Army. And when we went down to help, every day we passed him and he would hand us water. Wow. That's crazy. Tears. I mean, in Sitka, Alaska. Wow, that's crazy. Years later yeah. at the grocery store. He's a professor of, of uh, I think he's a psychologist now at Oklahoma University. He's got a beautiful family. But he sent me a cutting board for Christmas this year, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm just, you know, that moment. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you like that. Yeah, it was bizarre. Yeah. I mean, and I don't even know to this day what me, made me say, you know, because it was 15 years. So he tells me, oh, you got a little old looking. <laughs> I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> what about you, pal? 
<laughs> that was 15 years ago, you know? Yeah, you have aged beautifully. Yeah. Here comes that Ozone Park attitude. Yeah, right. Ozone Park attitude. Yeah, like, fuck you. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was bizarre. So I still stay in touch with that guy. And, uh, you know, so that, so, that, so that day that we spent together, I had my family come in with us. And then we went to this one bar we go to every year. And we went to this bar. And then they do a sundown ceremony. And uh, what they do is they put all the military in a circle, and the Emerald Society Pipe Band plays each of their hymns. Mm. And then there was a Marine unit boat there, and they, they took us back to Fort Taunton by boat. I said, take us to the, trade, to the uh, Statue of Liberty first. So here we all are on this boat, go right to the Statue of Liberty. It was a great moment. And then we went back to the fort, and that was the end of the day. You know, it was a beautiful day. Wow. That's that's all right. Yeah. Just remember that story, see? Yeah. Well, we'll remember it forever now. We've yeah, memorialized it. Yeah, yeah. Well, real quick, i got to mention a few things real quick. Seek Thermal Imagers, uh, they have a camera for every riding position. Economical, sleek. It has to be Seek. Mikey in at First in Leather. He uh, owns the company. He's a firefighter. He replaces his work if you uh, screw it up. If you want to check out code for 10% off $50 or more on your order for any custom leather goods, just use code BOX1971. Crestar Firefighting Equipment. If you're tired of paying for Brand X to only flow the same amount of water, just get with Crestar. <clears throat> Old Pappy's Tool Lube. Don't be a fool. Lube your tool. Sterling Rope. The Personal Safety System. The first, the best, that's got to be Sterling. If you need bailout training, Box 1971 is an authorized trainer for Sterling. Thompson Multimedia, if you can imagine it, David Shooter Thompson over at Thompson Multimedia can do it. Decal, wraps, awards, trophies. Your, your imagination is literally the limit. And last but not least, Akron Brass. So if you want to flow good water, you want a smooth bore, whatever you need, Akron Brass is your place to go. Chief, we're talking about, you talked about cancer. So is that directly related to 9-11? Mm -hmm. One more story I got. Yes, sir. This is a, yes, sir. This is another good story. I so, just had it typed here. No, I know. You're, as, you're, as you're doing things, I'm like, oh, let's ask about this. Okay. So my so, apologies. So now I'm assigned to Fort Totten. Okay. Right. And there's an Army Reserve unit on the fort, and I forget what number they are. I apologize. But they are the real deal. They, their history, they go back. They've been in a lot of battles. So every year they have, there's a church on the fort, and every year they have their service there. So they invite me to the service. So I go there, it's a Saturday or a Sunday, I forget what it was, in my Class A uniforms. And I pull in, and I had security by the front gate. And the firefighter said, Chief, thank God you're here. There's a guy who wants to fly a blimp out of here. I said, you let him in? <laughs> what did he show his Pathmark card? You let him in? <laughs> right? He's going to fly a blimp. And you said okay to that? So now just, once again, the luck of the draw that I'm going to be at the fort that day. So I go to, they, they call it the parade ground, and that's where they, they used to do all their marching and everything else. And now they're playing soccer there. And I go up to the guy in my uniform, and he's, he's all pissed. They're playing soccer here. I can't fly my blimp. I'm like, dude, no, you can't fly your blimp. <laughs> this is, he goes, I've got permission. I said, permission from who? FAA. I said, LaGuardia Airport's like five minutes from here. They're going to let you fly a blimp out of Fort Totten? I don't think so. So now I'm running late for this service, so I can't, good thing I didn't, but his, he had a trailer, and inside this trailer was his blimp, but also inside there he had propane, he had gasoline. Oh my God. So I didn't get into that trailer because 
I just told him to leave, and I had one of the guys escort him off the, uh, the, the property. So I said, here, this is the person you have to get in touch with. This chief is in charge of blimps and things like that, right? <laughs> so you have, a, you have a blimp division? Well, it's, yeah. The blimp Aerial reconnaissance. Okay, okay. It's, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, but they cover <laughs> planes and helicopters, things like that, and blimps come under that. So I said, contact this chief. So he contacts the chief, and he says to the and this chief says, you, like Chief Riley says, you can't fly a blimp out of here. You need permission. I've got permission. He says, you don't have permission. He goes, well, I'm flying it anyway. He goes, well, that's fine. I'll have you arrested. So he ends up giving him information. He says, so the guy ends up going out to Long Island to MacArthur Park, to, to MacArthur Airport. Okay. He flies the blimp out of there, and he crashes. <laughs> You can look. You can look it up. Massive people blimp crash, and you could see this blimp goes up and crashes in this um, playground. He calls it a you know controlled descent. It was a crash. Mm. I'm, I mean, I'm no blimp expert, but this was a crash, right? So can you imagine this guy want? And it was the day was I don't know. It was some big day. We were having a, some big parade. I forget what it was. But this guy wanted to fly over Fifth Avenue over this parade. Like, dude, where do you think you get – Who? what are you, crazy? Where do you get your balls big enough? Where do you enough? get your balls? So, <laughs> so, so not only that, can you imagine if this guy takes off? Chief Riley, you allowed the blimp to take off from Fort Houghton? I'd be like, I didn't know. Oh, your guy let him in. So fortunately, I was there that day to stop this whole thing. Anyway, fast forward, unfortunately. So I told you he crashed in Massapequa. If you look at a Massapequa blimp, blimp crash, you'll see it. Unfortunately, he ended up dying. He crashed again and died. He wasn't a very good blimp pilot, was he? But no, he was the best, he told me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he told me. I'm the best blimp pilot. I'm like... Maybe, maybe not. So anyway, so that's that's a story they just thought. That's terrible. It, it is. So, <laughs> but fortunately, I was there that day that he didn't fly this blimp out of there. Can you imagine this thing going over Fifth Avenue? Where did this come from? Oh, Fort Ton, Chief Riley. I got to talk to you. It's no big deal. <laughs> anyway, all right. No more stories. No, no, no. They're, they're these are great. <laughs> so you're you're diagnosed with cancer. Right, so I get promoted November 13th, 2014, and like two weeks later, what happened was my right eye um, was closing, and, and guys at work, Chief, what's wrong with your eye? Friends would say, Tom, what's wrong with your, your eye? Now, my wife and three kids never said a word. I guess they didn't notice me or anything. But, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. But coming home from work on the Cross Bronx, I'd be falling asleep. I'd be exhausted. Hmm. I didn't know I had cancer. So I'd be having the radio blasting, the window down, the air conditioning on, the heat on, whatever it was to keep awake. So, so now I get assigned to Fort Totten, and um, we had a registrar, this woman, Jackie. She was wonderful, and she would do, you know, you needed credits to get promoted. You needed, you know, degrees and credits. So right. she would, regi- she would um, organize all that. So she's telling me, Chief, I haven't had a raise in like 10 years. I said, Jackie, I'm getting you a raise. So I write a whole report about her, and I had to go up to headquarters. And I go to headquarters, I see my friend Bobby Turner, who was a battalion chief, and now he's, he was a deputy commissioner, but he was in her line that he was responsible for her. So now 
remember, everybody had told me, Chief, what's wrong with your eye? Friends told me what's wrong with your eye. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I go to see him. I hadn't seen him in about a year. We sit down. He goes, Tom, what's wrong with your eye? I said, that's it. So from that moment, I went to the doctors, and I kept getting it checked. And the eye doctor says, there's nothing wrong with your eye. So I'm like, ah, I don't believe this guy. So I went further, right? So I go to another big uh, eye company out here in Long Island. Now, mind you, this whole week, it was, I didn't tell my wife what was going on. Sure. Why would I tell her? She doesn't need to know. It's a need to know, and she doesn't need to know at this point. <laughs> so I would go to work, put my uniform on, do my meetings, put into my civilian clothes, go visit this doctor. Come back next day, same routine. So now this is, this is Monday. Finally, now on Thursday, we're all done. So I'm like, Doc, what do you think? He goes, well, Tom, if you put a gun to my head, I'll tell you it's cancer. Now, I figure, at this point, I figure it's cancer, right? right? So I'm like, all right, all right, what do you think? He puts his hand on my shoulder, he says, good luck, and he walked out of the room. Damn, okay. I said, good luck. That doesn't, what the fuck, that doesn't sound good. So now, I'll remind you, I'm, it's December 15th, it's dark, it's cold, I'm by myself. You know, guys at work knew about what I was doing, but my wife and kids don't know. Now I'm sitting there saying, I guess I'm going to die. Holy shit, good luck. Mm. So now the nurse looks at me. She runs out of the room. I'm in there by myself. So I said, ah, fuck. I just get up. I'm like, all right, well, it is what it is. What am I going to do? So now I go out to see this doctor to get more information. He's gone. He's with patients. So I'm like, you know what? Now I just want to get out of there. I just want to leave. That was Thursday. I had already set up a second opinion at Sloan Kettering on Monday. So I had to go the whole weekend with this good luck. <laughs> right? Nothing like a Friday news, right? Oh, oh it was great. So this was Thursday. So oh. I had Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday I had to go to Sloan Kettering. Holy cow. So now I'm going to Sloan, and uh, my wife says, uh, you know, I'm going. I said, you're not coming with me. She goes, what do you mean I'm not coming? I said, no, you're not coming with me. I said, because when I go there, I'm going to kick this cancer's ass, but if he gives me bad news, you're going to fall on the floor crying, and I got to deal with you. I said, you're not coming. So I brought my friend Brian Fink that we worked together in the 19th Battalion. So the two of us go in, go through the whole thing. He does all these tests. So now it's like D-Day, right? I'm sitting on the chair. He's got all the results. He walks in. He goes, ah, we could fix that. I'm like, what the f-? So now I go crazy. That <laughs> fucking asshole. And meanwhile, they're buddies, these two doctors. He said, this guy doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. Golfing buddies. And, and I'm like, that fucking asshole. You know what that fucking asshole did? Right? He said, Tom, calm down. He doesn't know. Well, I said, he shouldn't have said anything. He should have just said, I don't know, go to, you know, see him on Monday. Right. And, and then take it from there. So, anyway, so that was the deal with that. So, uh, yeah. just a little cancer, right? <laughs> yeah. So, it was a little cancer in my right eye. It was an inch by an inch behind my eye. I had to cut my eye, uh, my lid, take my eye out, take this growth out. And then we did radiation. And then, fast forward 2018, I can still go for my checkups every six months. Right. <clears throat> And the doctor who I love says, Tom, it's in your left eye. I'm like, oh, all right, what are we going to do? So did the biopsy, and then we did more radiation, and knock on wood. Here we are. Here we are. Amen. So your years in retirement, you you worked very – you spoke out for the Zadraga Act. Correct, yes. Yeah, did you work with Ray on that at all? Yes, I did. So when they were trying to get funding for the Zadraga Act – the Jadroga bill, you know, for whatever reason, political 
they nobody wanted to get involved. They didn't want to sign up for it. I don't know why. Right. So I was involved. You know, I was a deputy chief. I guess I was like the face of whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would go to Washington. I'd go to Albany. I was traveling all around with Ray Pfeiffer yeah. and a bunch of other guys. And um, uh, so we did all that. And I'll never forget, there was one member that wouldn't sign on in Congress. And um, so I called a friend of mine who worked in Washington. And I uh, called him up and I said, listen, you know, he was very influential. I said, we need to get this bill passed. And there's one person that's holding it up. He goes, oh, by the way, I have a meeting with him this morning. When I'm done, we'll talk about it. So he had the meeting and whatever happened, this person signed on and there's a, there's a droga bill passed. Thank God. So, yeah. When Ray passed, <clears throat> I came up for the funeral. He was sweetheart, oh, he sweetheart was. of a guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in Dinwiddie County, Virginia oh. on uh, I-85. No, yeah, I-85 coming north where you merge into 95 just south of Richmond. I was running two miles an hour over. Oh, no. I got a ticket from a deputy. Wow. Ruined my whole day. He wouldn't cut you any slack? <laughs> he didn't. He they, they had a zero tolerance. And they say that Virginia is the hardest place wow. to get a speeding ticket in. It cost me $480 to get out of it. Wow. I had to pay a lawyer and go to traffic school. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a CDL, so the points no, the points yeah. add up no you know? without a doubt oh <laughs> but my God. that was my and you know of course and, and i wasn't looking for preferential treatment my uniform was hanging in the you know on the the hook in the car mm-hmm. it was just dumb luck you know oh, two cool. miles an hour over but the semi that was beside me in the left lane was pulling away mm-hmm. so you know you don't fight city hall you just no, no, no. you take care of it yeah <laughs> yep. so your work now is with Tunnel to Towers. That is correct. So for those that aren't, um, that one, didn't get to train with us, but will hopefully in the future do that um, and learn about it, can you explain to people what Tunnel to Towers does? Should I give the history, the brief Yeah, history? please, okay, please. Okay, so the Tunnel to Tower Foundation <clears throat> started uh, with the death of firefighter Stephen Silla. So... Stephen Silla was a firefighter in Squad 1 in Brooklyn. He got off in the morning. He was going to play golf with his brothers. He leaves the firehouse, and he had a scanner in his car, and he hears at the Trade Center, a plane crash into the Trade Center. He goes back to Squad 1 in Brooklyn. They've already been dispatched. So he gets his gear, drives his truck to the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Now the tunnel is shut down because of security risks. So what does he do? He parks his truck, puts his gear on, 60 pounds of gear, runs through the tunnel, and ultimately gets killed. Now, Stephen, as a young boy, when he grew up, he, uh, there was, I think there was seven, seven siblings. He was one of seven. His father died when he was eight. His mother died when he was nine and a half. His siblings raised him. So now he gets, he's married and he has five children. Now he gets killed. He's 34 years old. So his brothers and sisters started this foundation, Tunnels to Towers. And you could donate by going to T, the letter T as in Tom, number 2, T as in Tom, dot org, T2T.org, Tunnels to Towers. So the brothers, I mean, they, look, and I tell Frank all the time, you could have just had the funeral, had the wake, and moved on. 
but they had this idea to start this foundation. This foundation has paid off over 2,000 mortgages. Any firefighter, a first responder, military person who gets killed, they pay off their mortgage. Think about that, right? We're all struggling to make ends meet. Now a person gets killed. Now you take that financial burden off their plate. So all, I mean, look, they have enough on their plate. Now they don't have the finances to worry about. If a firefighter, military, first responder gets injured, they'll pay off their mortgage. If they get killed, they'll pay off their mortgage. They have a gold star program for the military, the guys who get killed, they pay off their mortgage. They also have the smart homes. The military guys, they come back, amputees. They build a smart home for them that's tailored to their needs. I was just down in Land O'Lakes, Florida, and somebody donated this plot of land, and they're going to build, like, Tunnels of Towers is going to build 100 homes. We were just there, I guess, about a month ago, six weeks ago, and this Hawaiian guy, I, can't, I don't want to even pronounce his name, but it's S-U-A, they, they call him Sua, Su. Uh, they donated a house to him, uh, mortgage-free, and it's designed specifically for him. He's got no feelings from the, the chest down. He's in a wheelchair. They do that. They do, um, for the newest thing is the veterans. Last year, in 2022, they started. They've housed 500 vet- veterans. This year, they're going to do another 1,500. They're building all these homes for these veterans, facilities, I should say. And along with that is all the facilities and services that they need whether it's mental health, whether it's uh, you name it, that's all part of this. So that's going to be 2,000 veterans this year alone. They do training across the country, uh, talking about, not training, but uh, awareness of September 11th so we don't forget. It's a great organization, and 95 cents out of every dollar goes towards helping people. They're, They're rated with four stars, the highest rating on Charity Navigator, I mean, it's a great organization. And like I said, Frank and the whole crew, you talk to Frank, that's the brother. Uh, he's, he's unbelievable. He's the nicest guy, and they just keep doing, doing, doing. So if you have, they're looking for like $11 a month. If you can do that or more, tunneltotowers.org, t2t.org. Uh, you know, if you can donate, it's great. Thank, we would truly appreciate that. This training event, that Jeremy put together with Mike and Gianni this weekend was a total success. It taught the brothers how to force doors and at the same time raised a ton of money for a great cause. So that's the tunnels to towers.org. It's uh, <clears throat> that uh, it's $11 easily spent. You know, uh, you go smoke one cigar, mm-hmm. you know, who can't afford $11 is, you know, you know, it may be your family that benefits one day, God forbid, mm-hmm. you know, but, or one of your brothers or sisters that, that needs the help. Um, this is a truly amazing organization. Um, nothing but positive interactions with anybody you call. Uh, we've dealt with Matthew through this whole event. He's done an amazing job. And then you coming and being a presence and talking to people and you, you handed out some flyers to folks and said, hey, look, this is what you can do that's going to help go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a box for Mr. Frank. If you can deliver that for him, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that would mean a lot to us. 
um, if you could make that happen. But I will tell you, this has been an absolute amazing time to spend with you. I appreciate you carving out some time to <laughs> sit and talk to us about your career and about Stephen and about everything you've done because what you've done in your career is just like Mike. You 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 don't want to be like Mike though. <laughs> You're not as loud as Mike. <laughs> well, we can be. <laughs> but the uh, you've done things to impact firefighter safety and you've done things to advance our profession and and we we say thank you for that because somebody's got to do it. It's not always fun. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you want to bang your head against a desk. Mm-hmm. Most nights, that's me. A lot me. of times. But we, uh, we, we thank you for making the time. I mean, you drove all the way out to North Patchogue, and, you know, I'm sure you're not compensated for your time. You're not, you know, you're, you're doing this because you love the job still. 100%. And, you know, had things turned out different, you know, you'd have probably worked right up till 65. Yeah, like I said, they cut my career short with 38 years, you know what I mean? Right, <laughs> right. So, That's... so I had a good run. Um, one other thing I, I yes, forgot sir. to mention that Tunnels of Towers does also, uh, every year if there's a, a weather event, a hurricane or a tornado, we'll go there and have a toy drive for the people that are displaced to give toys to the kids. Also, what Frank does is he'll donate um, money for supplies. Like we were down in Florida when they got impacted during Ian, yeah, repairing homes, he donated sheetrock, plywood, and us as volunteer fire as as retired firefighters would go there and do the work. So the organization it just does so much to help people. They're there, for everybody. So if you can, once again, tunnelstotowers.org. Eleven dollars a month would be nice. Yeah, it, more would be better. Yeah, that's right. Well, I know that. I know that Mike and I, uh, without getting into financials on things, we donate annually every year. Mm-hmm. And then I do the $11 a month personally and just, you know, it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 100%. it's the right thing to do. So we normally end that with words of wisdom, but I think we're going to forgo that because I think you've, you've killed it. You've knocked it mm-hmm. out of the park, Chief. You have, you've, you've been a sweetheart to deal with, and we thank you for spending the time with us and hanging out with us and treating us like family and just it's 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 refreshing well i gotta say listen i just met all you guys the other day and you're right it's like family like i know you forever but that's the fire service right you could i could go from new york to california to north carolina to utah wherever you go and you meet the brothers and the brothers of the brothers they'll do anything for you that's right and just meeting you guys you're all a a hundred percent and it was a pleasure meeting every one of you well chief i on behalf of box 1971 um and all of us personally thank you uh continue what you're doing because you're doing the right thing in the right place at the right time for the right reasons and that's that's the that's the measure of character so with that we bid you farewell from long island new york remember to train hard we are all that they have